Hall Hall has his options downfield and is intercepted. Intercepted. Mike Hicks falls to the ground and Baylor is going to have one of their biggest wins in years. No screaming today, Don. No screaming? I have to be very, very careful with my delicate voice <laughs> as I basically blew it at Pearl Jam 20. Ah, yes. Since I've been home, I've been sipping on hot tea with lemon, trying to heal my dulcet tones. <laughs> Is it working out? I don't know. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through it. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 40. They said it couldn't be done. <laughs> Actually, I think what Damashik said exactly was after 40 to get the hell off the air. Damashik said that? Yeah, I think he was on episode 20 and he congratulated us on 20, but he said about 40, that'll be enough already. Yeah, just knock it off. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, I think we're going to soldier on despite that. Uh, it's September 6, 2011. We're live from Buffalo, New York. And by live, I, I co- of course mean taping a podcast. <laughs> uh, it's the NFL kickoff spectacular. It's our 40th episode. And we have a really good one planned for you. Uh, we have Richard Deitch, one of my favorite guests from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. We're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. Open with him, but mostly we're going to focus on the NFL season from a sports media perspective. We did a little bit of that with Ken Fangs a few episodes ago, but we're going to focus a little bit even harder on that with Richard Deitch. Also, very, very, very excited, and the reason this is getting posted so late is because we waited around a little bit for one of the big guests, one of the big guns at Sports Illustrated. I think when you're reading football on sportsillustrated.com, you're reading Peter King, you're reading Don Banks, and then you're reading Jim Trotter. And uh, Jim Trotter is lo- uh, kind enough to join us to help preview the NFL season. And also we have an interview with Rob Domofsky from the Green Bay Post-Gazette. He's going to give us kind of a look and a feel into what's going on in Green Bay as they prepare to host this NFL kickoff game on Thursday. Uh, schools, Don, are getting out at 1 o'clock That's in awesome. Green Bay on Thursday. So he's going to let us know uh, kind of from the streets there in Green Bay how things are going. A couple things I want to remind everyone of before we get going. If you still have a fantasy draft, we are going to be doing 5 on Fantasy a little bit later. And we're going to devote a few minutes of that to uh, maybe some sleepers or busts if you're still going to be drafting. But also I wanted to remind you to to go back a couple episodes to episode 38 and check out our interview with Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network and uh, NFL.com. He's the fantasy expert there. So please check him out. And kind of as a companion piece to our Richard Deitch interview today, uh, you can check out our interview with Ken Fangs, which is also on episode 38. Another thing I want to mention, Don and I are both working on completing and posting sometime tomorrow, Wednesday, or maybe today by the time you're listening to this, uh, two big blogs to preview the NFL season. Mine's going to be called 32 Things, with one each being about an NFL team. And this is going to be called 32 Run-On Sentences, again, one about each NFL team. And we're going to preview those blogs a little bit later in today's show. So we got three things. We got Richard Deitch. We got five on fantasy. We got Jim Trotter. 
We got a preview of our NFL kickoff blogs, which can be found on the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And also, we have an interview with Rob Domofsky and Pick 4. So let's get all of that started. Let's not waste any more time and do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, uh, we usually end with the serious ones, but I'll start with a little bit of sad news because we have an exciting and positive and fun podcast today. Wade Belak, former NHL player, was found dead in his uh, hotel room. Uh, he had hung himself. Awful. Yeah, and that marks the third NHL player in about, this comes only 16 days after Rick Rippon's death. And less than four months after Derek Bugard's accidental death from a mixture of drugs and alcohol. I don't really know what stance to take on this. Obviously, it's sad. Uh, I don't know if this is a big problem in the NHL, especially particularly among tougher players. It seems like these are all kind of the enforcer-type players. I don't want to say one way or another that it has to do with head injuries or anything like that or just the, the makeup of these type of guys, but... It's sad, but unfortunately it's becoming a pattern, and it's something that the NHL needs to look at. Yeah, I think John Butchergrass tweeted an article that I, I can't remember who wrote it, but if you check Butchergrass's timeline, it's in there somewhere. Uh, it's something out of Canada that kind of pointed out a potential problem that the NHL is having with prescription pain pills, and especially with these enforcer guys who... Yeah, they must be on them all the time. Yeah, uh get banged around and and they play to kind of sacrifice their body that's kind of the the reason they play in the nhl and the reason they got there and it's just really sad to see the players dying off like this absolutely this isn't this isn't professional wrestling with steroids and everything not that that's any less sad but this is this is pro sports and you just shouldn't see this stuff my first thing is not quite as sad as yours but (laughs) also a little bit classless the jacksonville jaguars made a decision today just two days before the NFL season kicks off in Green Bay, to cut David Garrard, who has been playing all season as their starting quarterback, all preseason. And this is the second time in four years the Jaguars have pulled this move. If you remember, four years ago, they did the same thing with Byron Byron Lafwich, cutting him right before the season to start David Garrard. And now, four years later, David Garrard is getting a taste of that medicine. And they're going to decide to start the season with Luke McCowan as their quarterback, a journeyman, basically, a lifetime backup. He's going to be their starter. And there's two things I don't like about this move. (laughs) One is it's in a market that struggles to sell tickets anyway. Right. And you're basically sending a message to that fan base that there's no reason to worry or pay attention to this season. This season is over. Right. Before it starts. They're making a decision to, to cut their, their starter, to go with a, a lesser player, and basically to gear up for the Blaine Gabbert era. Right. Uh, in professional wrestling, you mentioned they have something called uh, bridge champions. Okay. You know, where someone will win a belt basically just to lose it to a future guy. Right. Luke McCowan is basically getting the starting job to, lose to it hand to it over to 
Blaine Gabbert. Blaine Gabbert in, in the future. And I think if not for the lockout and kind of the slow progress of rookies without mini camps and things like this this year, Gabbert probably would Gabbert have probably would have right. just gotten it away, uh, right away. The second thing I don't like about this move is you have a guy who sacrificed for you and for a long time, and you cut him now when there's very little chance for him to find a job right away. Yeah. And you probably knew you wanted to do this for quite a while. And if he played week one, basically as being a veteran, his contract would have been guaranteed. So you avoid doing that. And it's just a jerk move. I say thumbs down to you, Jack Del Rio. Thumbs down to the Jaguars franchise, who, on a second but briefer note, Fred Taylor, probably their greatest player of all time, retired as a Jaguar. Yeah, signed for one day, yep. So poo-poo, Jaguars. My second thing, much more uplifting, uh, has to do with some Indiana... Uh, high school line linemen. Three members of the Forest Park High School offensive line uh, rescued a pregnant woman. Basically, they were heading into a store, and they heard a car crash, and it uh, started on fire. It actually flipped into uh, like a roadside ditch. So the three players, they stomped down a barbed wire fence that was in between the car. They got to the passengers, and there was a driver a three-year-old child who they helped pull out, and then there was a pregnant woman inside. So the boys, with the help of two other people, f- got uh, up into the under the car, flipped the truck over while the engine was on fire, and wow. managed to get the woman out. Yeah. That's incredible. So, uh, what team? Good for the uh, the high school kids, actually. It's uh, the Forest Park High. Wow. So good for them, uh, Anthony Fisher, Austin Kempf, and Ethan Neust. Heroes. Yeah, good. Nice job. Well done. Heroes in a week where we'll be talking a lot about heroes as we get closer and closer to the 10th year anniversary of That's 9/11. right. Yep. Congratulations, kids. My second story, Jim Tressel has had a strange start to his NFL <laughs> career. Uh, Jim Tressel, obviously the humiliated and humbled former coach of the Ohio State University left that program earlier in the summer amidst uh, a bunch of speculation and and uh, controversy. And basically that program is screwed. And him and uh, Pryor yep. both basically together ruined it and left. The NFL allowed Pryor to join the league but suspended him for six games. The Colts then hired Trestle uh, to be a consultant. And they have done the same, uh, suspending him. He's, he's like their instant replay consultant or something strange like that, right? Yeah, he's a really strange, basically yeah. almost uh, a volunteer coach practically. I, I, he might be being paid, but I'm not certain. But anyway, he's going to be suspended. And Commissioner Goodell today hinted that if the Colts hadn't suspended him, he would have. So the Colts basically getting ahead of that thing and suspending him for a few weeks. Kind of a, an auspicious start to Jim Trestle kind of rebuilding his image <laughs> in Indianapolis. Yeah, speaking of guys whose uh, images may have been tarnished a little bit, we talked about him pretty much since we've started talking football on this podcast, and that's Chris Johnson. He finally gets his contract. He's going to get $53 million over, I believe, four years. I'm missing it here. Uh, $30 million are going to be guaranteed over the first three years. Or thirty million are guaranteed, and he'll actually receive thirty-one million over the first three years. The uh, relevant part of that is that 
D'Angelo Williams, who just signed that big five-year, $43 million contract, will get $30 million over the first three seasons of the deal. So it seems like a little bit more than a coincidence that Chris Johnson got $31 million over the first three years of his deal. And I guess it seems fair. Yeah, he's probably getting paid more than any running back is worth but he's not getting the crazy quarterback money that it seemed like he was seeking. So, And like you said, they needed him. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this was a move that had to happen. Get on the field. Now the question is, what type of shape is he in? Is right. he going to... F- and they would be smart to limit him a little bit. You, they don't want a repeat of what happened to Revis last year. Right. Remember, Revis was the big player last year who sat out of camp all year, played week one against the Patriots, and came up lame on a long touchdown that Randy Moss Randy Moss, got. yeah, he torched him. So you do not want that to happen to Chris Johnson and for him to be struggling with it all season. So I think they need to ease him into it a little bit, uh, limit him at practice, limit him in the games a little bit, and get him up to speed right around that quarter pole of right. the season. So from a fantasy perspective, he probably moves back into that top four or five guy slot, maybe just because of what we said, maybe not a number two guy like he may have been drafted earlier in the season. Right. My number three thing, as I said off the top, voice a little hoarse. Uh, this podcast was started off a little disjointed. Don and I had to sit down and uh, do a little bit more planning than we do usually do on Tuesdays, and that's because I spent my, the weekend in Wisconsin for Pearl Jam 20. I mentioned I would be there last week. I checked Deadspin. I, see, don't, I still don't see anything on their site about it. AJ Delirio had come on this podcast and mentioned that they were going to do some kind of music thing and it was going to center around Pearl Jam 20. Uh, but maybe the plans are to kind of hold off on that till the movie comes out on the 20th. Uh, but just as kind of a recap of my weekend, it was amazing. I think I said on Twitter, a lot of things change, but one thing that will never change is you can always count on Pearl Jam to be there for you. And anyone who's a big fan of their music knows what I mean. And knows why. And it was a great time in Wisconsin. They did a great job of putting the festival together. My friend Matt and I were able to see uh, a few different bands and a few great nights. Three-hour shows that Pearl Jam put on, including Chris Cornell showing up and doing a a little Temple of the Dog reunion. And uh, it was a great time. I missed Don there. Me too. But I know that we're going to have our chance to see some shows this weekend and this week. Yep. Can't wait. As Bart Scott would say, can't wait. So that's it? That's it. That's three things we for gotta, today. we got to keep our segments tight because yeah, we got a we lot gotta to do. Yeah, we got to be tight. we got a lot, lot to, do. to do. And we're going to start that lot to do with Richard Deitch, and then we'll return with Five on Fantasy. Our next guest is a graduate of the University at Buffalo. He got his master's degree at Columbia University in the city of New York. He then went on to spend one year as a Knights Wallace Fellow at Michigan. He is the author of a number of children's books and has contributed to numerous newspapers and magazines, such as Vibe and the San Diego Union Tribune. Currently, he writes for Sports Illustrated and SI.com, covering all things media, the Olympics, tennis, and women's basketball. Currently, he is running all over the U.S. Open and getting ready for the start of the NFL season. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the greatest media personality on Twitter, the great Richard Deitch. How are you doing today, Richard? First of all, again, you know, thank you uh, for having me on, but I'm, I, I'm always fascinated by where you're reading this bio from. 
because the um, he's written for Vibe and the San Diego Union Tribune. I mean, that's like from a bio from like 15 years ago. You have the fact that I was at Michigan a couple years ago. Right. So that's relatively new. So, I mean, your research is impressive, but it's more fascinating in that it's, it's as if you're combining different parts of my life into one gigantic intro. Yeah, we dig deep. You know, we've, we've studied you. That's, that's, my, my advice would be <laughs> to perhaps move on to more interesting, <laughs> interesting subjects. But regardless, I appreciate the invitation, and thank you for the nice intro. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So how excited are you about your nomination for, for Dan Levy's uh, awards there? Cause Blog, I, the Blogs with Balls Award. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, listen, it's, uh, I sound like, a, like a, an actress or an actor here, but I want to appreciate being nominated. Um, I really like Twitter, and I try to do my best to provide um, a service for people more than just uh, go out there and self-promote myself. Um, the other people in that category um, are real good, you know, from, uh, from Skeets to Jay Billis, um, Try to think Spencer Hall, I think, is part of that uh, category. I would say, podcasters maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, the one thing I would say is, I am fine with you voting for anyone except Darren Ravel. If anyone uh, wins other than Darren Ravel, I will be clapping and waving the flag. If Ravel wins, you know, you might see me with a tear somewhere in the audience. That day. You really like to stir it up on Twitter. I do like to stir it up on Twitter when you know I feel like it's. Uh, it's warranted. I, I'm certainly opinionated, and um, I'm not going to be shy uh, about um, uh, you know forwarding people to media wars when they exist because I think they're very amusing and sort of uh, give uh, a little bit of uh, insight into narcissism uh, of the media. Um, I'm certainly, uh, if you follow me, I'm not afraid to take a shot at uh, uh, at a television personality who I think is. Uh, of being ridiculous to the viewer and or viewers. Skip. Um, so, yeah, I, what I re- to be very honest with you, what I just try to do on that feed is I really just try to be like, if you were talking to me at a bar, it'd be the same exact person, uh, and I'd say be saying the same exact thing that I am on Twitter. I'm just not trying to be put a front on or be fake. Um, you know, what you see is generally what you get. Um, and when I take shots at uh, Skip Bayless and Cow- Colin Coward, et cetera, I would be the, I'd say the same thing to you if we were sitting in a bar in Buffalo somewhere. That'd be fun. Uh, let's start with the U.S. Open a little bit. Uh, first question I have for you, it was something that was kind of a buzz on Twitter last night. What are they doing putting one of the biggest stars in the history of the sport, what is he doing playing at 11.50 p.m. Eastern time? Well, I mean, you got to remember that what the U.S. Open is famous for having um, at least one or two very, very long late nights. Um, and yesterday, um, things just got pushed back in the main stadium, Arthur Ashe, because there was a five-set match in the afternoon between um, Sanga and Marty Fish. And what, you know, what happens then is it pushes the first match, which is supposed to be the night match back, which was Wozniacki and Kuznetsova. And that match was about a three-hour and ten-minute match. And then finally, like you said, Federer got on at 11.30. The question is, should at one point the U.S. Open make a decision to put Roger Federer on another court but I don't think that would be fair to the people who paid a lot of money at Arthur Ashe for those tickets that night. So, yeah, I mean, it's a little ridiculous to start a sporting event at 11.30. At the same time, though, you know, those are sometimes the matches you remember. 
And, you know, I mean, the, the Federer match turned out to be uh, pretty much a, a rout. But had that been some great five-cent match, trust me, the tennis fans 20 years from now would have been like, oh, do you remember the time when Federer beat so-and-so at 2.30 in the morning in the fifth set? Um, so, you know, it doesn't happen every night. It happens maybe once or twice a tournament. It's not necessarily fun for the media who has to stay out there forever, and certainly not for the players. Um, but I'm not really that down on that. I, I, I kind of think that's an interesting part of the U.S. Open. Uh, Donald Young seems to kind of uh, be making a name for himself at the U.S. Open. He's a 1989-born uh, United States player. Is he really the future of U.S. tennis? Uh, hard to say. Um, I mean, um, he, you know, I think a, a couple of years ago, people thought he was going to be the next great player. Um, when he was 15 and 16, ranked number one ranked junior in the world, won the Australian Open juniors, um, an incredibly huge, touted prospect, signed with IMG, had a Nike contract, uh, but it didn't happen for him. And he's really spent the last three or four years um, not in a very good place. His ranking, uh, the highest, is, I think it was 73 or something to that. But he's had a great tournament. It's a breakthrough tournament for him. He's had a good summer and now a great U.S. Open. Plays Andy Murray next, which will be uh, tomorrow. We're taping this on Tuesday. It got ranked yep. out. They'll be playing on Wednesday. Um, so, it, it really, the Donald Young story is interesting, and in, in it, it's really about what happens next. Does he take this great showing at the Open no matter what happens in the Murray match? And does he move forward? Does he slowly move into the top 50? Does he then slowly move into the top 30? Um, he's got a lot of game. He's, he's, uh, he's very, very quick. He's got a terrific forehand, um, great hands at the net. He needs work on his footwork, um, certainly needs work on his serve. Um, but one of the big things that held Donald Young back was his attitude. He really wasn't a pro on the court. Would lose his composure, get upset. Um, you know, it looks like now he's maturing a little bit. It looks like he's, he gets it. He's been great with, uh, with the press, and I, I've been really impressed with his demeanor in this tournament. So he's absolutely a kid to watch. Uh, you know, obviously the sport has not had a lot of African-American male stars. James Blake won lately. Um, so he'd be, he really would be an, an interesting guy in the sport and that he'd bring more people uh, into tennis. So, um, so I, I, I hope this is the beginning of something really good from Donald Young. Uh, Donald Young, as we mentioned, uh, Andy Roddick, and John Eisner are the three remaining United States-born players on the men's side after Marty Fish lost yesterday. Do any of these three guys have a legitimate chance to win this, or are we headed for kind of the big three squaring off in some way and uh, ending the tournament with Federer and Nadal and uh, Devo- uh Djokovic. Djokovic. Yeah. yeah, I don't give I don't give any of those Americans any chance to win the U.S. Open. I'm not sure any of them are actually going to win their next match. Um, you know, for Donald Young's uh, position, I mean, he's already had a great tournament. At this point, it's gravy. Um, Isner maybe can win one more match, but initially, eventually, he doesn't have enough weapons. Uh, I think to beat the big boys, he got a great serve, one of the best in the game, but not enough beyond that. And Andy Roddick would admit himself, he really isn't in the best. Uh, um, position uh, he hasn't had, uh, this, at this tournament. He hasn't had a lot of matches, um, and I think I, I, I think it would be unrealistic to think he gets beyond David Ferrer or if somehow he gets Nadal, beyond him. Right. Yeah, I, I just I think that it's the end of the road for him. You know, tennis has really become about uh, uh, you know three big guys, and right now this year it's only been about one big guy in Djokovic. Um, you know, it's Djokovic. A little separation to Dahl, and then a little more separation to Federer. 
Um, so it's very, very hard to think that one of those three guys isn't going to win the tournament. And I'll be honest with you, it's very hard to even think that it's not going to be Djokovic and Nadal in the final. I'd love to see Federer go on a run, but I, I'm not even sure that's realistic. So, you know, it's a long way to answer your question. There's no way, in my opinion, one of those three guys does not win. And I think I'd be very surprised if either Djokovic or Nadal is not holding the trophy up at the end. So just a couple more questions about the female draw then, and we'll move on to the NFL. Uh, Serena Williams has found her way into the quarterfinals. Can she win this thing? Yes, I think she will win this thing. Um, okay. I don't think I don't, I don't think that uh, I don't think there's anybody at this point who can beat Serena. I'm not even sure she'll lose another set. Hmm. Um, it really speaks to the uh, paucity of the women's draw. Uh, women's tennis is in a a really um, it's not in the best position because there's just really not many great players in the game right now. Um, you know, Wozniacki is the number one seed, but she's never won a major, and she really hasn't shown the fortitude in big matches to win. Um, you know, Serena, it, it, I mean, this, it says everything about the sport and that Serena can miss half the year, come back, and by far be the best player. Um, you know, Kim Kleisters, who's a two-time defending U.S. Open champ, is hurt. She's not here. Uh, the Wimbledon champ, Petra Kvitica, got knocked out. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very hard to make an argument for anybody who's left in the draw, Sam Stos or Azarenka, to beat Serena. She's just too mentally tough. She's just got too big a strokes, and she's really more fit than she's been in a long time. It would be, I mean, it would be a significantly big upset if Serena Williams doesn't win the tournament, and I don't think actually she's going to lose a set for the rest of the tournament. Uh, the tournament is going to head into the weekend and is going to face off against the NFL a little bit. Uh, what needs to happen for the tournament to kind of remain relevant in the weekend um, as it bumps up against college football and the NFL? Or do you think that, you know, this tournament is kind of, it's, it's the U.S. Open, and regardless, it's going to have uh, a full house at the, end of, at the end and the TV is going to be what the TV is? I think you. I think you hit it on the ladder. I mean, it, it can't compete with the NFL for ratings. It's not even in the same stratosphere. Um, so the tennis fans who um, who love the sport will watch on that Sunday, um, and you know they'll probably get three million viewers or whatever it is, two and a half million viewers. But you can't compete with the NFL, which is going to get twenty million viewers on the first Sunday at four o'clock. Um, it is what it is. I mean, tennis is a niche sport in this country. Um, I think for CBS, I'm sure they're hoping for Nadal Djokovic or Federer Djokovic or you know something to that effect, which can get some eyeballs. Um, but it has no chance at all um, to compete in terms of a rating with the NFL. So the way I look at it is it's, you know, it's, on, uh, it's on a channel where everybody can get CBS, wherever your CBS affiliate is, wherever you live. Um, and the tennis fans who are into it will watch. The football fans will watch football. Maybe they'll turn over for a little bit to watch tennis. But in general, it's it's you know it's like comparing uh, it's just comparing like you know two different stratospheres. It's it's right. it's you know comparing Pluto and Earth. They just it's you can't compare them. One is going to be seen by twenty twenty five million people. The other thing is going to be seen by three million. Yeah, Pluto sucks. Um, <laughs> let's let's shift gears. Let's talk about the NFL. You put out your 2011 NFL broadcasting guide today on SI.com, your media circus column, which uh, should be a must-read for everybody. We, had, we were lucky enough to have Kenny Albert on last week, and um, we talked to him a little bit about his position at um, Fox. Where do you think Jeff, uh, Joe Buck stands with his, with his throat? Do you think that um, he's okay? Or you- well, uh, you know, it's a good question. I haven't talked to Joe, so I can't tell you what he's. 
Uh, I can't tell you firsthand how he is. I read Richard Sandomir's piece. He did a, he talked to Buck, uh, uh, a couple not months, maybe a week or two weeks ago and did a long piece on him. I mean, I think, you know, he is nursing a significant, um, you know, viral issue with his voice, um, back to health. I mean, anyone who's listened to Buck over the last couple months, you know, has heard the change in his voice and you can hear the guy struggling with calls. It's a little better now than it was or early in the summer. Um, but I think the thing that's really interesting about Buck, and, and um, it, it's not surprising to me, it's just more interesting, is just how polarizing the guy is. You know, you're on Twitter sometimes when the guy calls a game, and there's so many people hating on him. Right. Which um, is interesting to me because, listen, he, uh, I, I don't think he's the best NFL broadcaster. I think that would be Al Michaels in terms of play-by-play. But I think Joe Buck is a competent broadcaster. I'm just more surprised how many people really dislike the guy, or at least a segment that dislikes the guy. Um, I'm just more surprised that he draws that kind of emotional uh, reaction. Uh, But I think, you know, the hope is that, you know, he he continues his voice exercises or whatever he's doing, and the voice um, will get better. That said, I I think the criticism of him, at least on Twitter, is going to be pretty robust in the next couple of weeks because I don't think his voice is back to 100%. And I do think there's a whole group of people out there who don't like him, and I think they're going to be heard. Well, you have Gus Johnson listed as the eighth play-by-play guy with uh, Charles Davis and Tim Brewster. Are you surprised that he didn't get a little bit of a better position than that with the NFL? Well, uh, you got to remember, he's doing, um, college you know, football, he's, right? yeah, he's doing college football, and that's his first... Uh, you know, that's his first priority. So he's going to do a select group of games. And, um, you know, when he, when he gets those games, those games may be better than the quote-unquote eighth position. Um, but, you know, it's a part-time gig for him right now on Fox. Um, and Fox is very set with its first three teams in terms of Buck Aikman, Albert Johnston, uh, and Brenneman Billick. So, um I guess I'm a little surprised, but, I, I, you know, I, I would expect maybe Gus to get better games um, next year. But the priority for Gus, at least when it comes to Fox, is um, is college football. I mean, that's, right. you know, he's their number one voice. They want to build that property up, and that's where his focus is. Um, so, you know, I don't doubt that he might not get a good game or two during the year, but, you know, he's not getting the Buck Aikman game, and he's not going to even get the number two game, the Albert Johnson Saragusa game. You mentioned that Fox thinks that Saragusa is very funny and that maybe the rest of us don't. Uh, Kenny Albert mentioned he's going to have kind of an improved setup and he's going to have a telestrator and he's going to write on the screen and things like that. How, what do you think of kind of the that second team with the unique aspect of having Saragusa on the field? Is that something you like or do you think that's kind of a, an experiment that's kind of run its course and maybe they should try to find a better fit for their second team? Well, listen, I, don't, I, I have no problem with a guy on the sideline, even a former player who um, you know can provide you insight. I just think Tony Saragusa for the most part, it's just he's sort of there for comic relief. He doesn't really, at least for me, provide, uh, you know, anything thoughtful or interesting during a game. It's essentially one-liners. I mean, he's down there, so occasionally I guess you'll get something just because of proximity. Um, But I don't think it's a bad idea for Fox. I just particularly think they have the wrong guy down there. Um, As far as Albert and... um, and Daryl Johnson, I have no problem with them. Uh, you know, I think Kenny Albert's a solid play-by-play guy. 
Uh, a. Johnson, like every other analyst, you know, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes I, th- I think he's really on his game, and other times, uh, you know, I think he can be bland. But I, I, I don't really have a problem with them as a number two team. I don't particularly think Saragusa is that great, um, and I think that team would really be improved by having somebody else in that uh, position. Um, but there is value to have a person on the quote-unquote sidelines, or to have a person um, in the position Saragusa is in, because you know, the whole thing about being a viewer is you want you want your broadcasters to report things that you can't see, and the Saragusa position is someone uh, he's someone on the field you know looking at things that we we as viewers can't see. So you know, in terms of philosophically, it's potentially a, a really really good thing for viewers. I just don't think Saragusa particularly delivers it well. One thing that Fox did uh, kind of out of the box last season was adding Mike Pereira to the to the mix. Uh, you said that you would like to see his role kind of change a little bit if it was up to you. Why is it that you think he would be better on a weekly basis than a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think his role should be changed. I think we should just see more of him. I think Pereira's great. I yeah. think when he's on the air, I think he's really interesting. I think he provides um, I think he provides viewers with something that they normally don't get. So rather than him coming on just when there's a controversial call, I'd love to see the guy on uh, once a week on Fox, maybe even if it's a minute or two-minute segment, just basically letting him know what he's going to be looking for today. If there's any kind of like uh, particular like um, uh, incidents over the uh, over the previous week's games that were of interest to him or to a referee, or you know, here's something you know I've noticed that you know this call has been called four times in the last week. I think the guy would be valuable every week and not just in a in a. You know, not just on a case-by-case basis where there happens to be a controversial call. I just like him. I think he's an interesting. Uh, I think he provides an interesting perspective, and people who provide interesting perspectives, I want to see more on the air than less. The sportscasters are here with Richard Deitch from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Richard Deitch, D-E-I-T-S-C-H. Uh, a couple questions about the CBS team. Were you su- were you surprised at all that Marv Albert only got the fourth spot with Rich Gannon? Did you expect him to maybe be closer to number two than that? I think, like in terms of like um, reputation and or deservedness, yeah, I think he absolutely could be the number two guy. The thing is, though, they're pretty deep. I mean, Nance and Sims are definitely the number one. They're not going anywhere. And then the number two is Gumbel and Deardorff. They're really well-liked by uh, Sean McManus and his executive group at CBS. Um, yeah, so you know, maybe Marv could slot into number three. But uh, the Iron Eagle-Dan Fouts team, I think, is really good. That might have been my favorite new team last year. And, and I think both guys are really, really good. Both guys use humor well in the broadcast. Um, I think Fouts is a really good analyst. He's the game well. So I think it's more of an issue with the fact that CBS is just very deep in its broadcast teams. But in terms of, like, reputation or in terms of deservedness, yeah, Mar probably should be higher than a four. And I think if he was on another network, let's say he was on Fox, I think he might be a two for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's doing Bill's Chiefs this week. Yeah, which is, you know, absolutely <laughs> not the biggest game of the no. week. Not even close. Yeah. All right, let's talk pregame shows for a second. Fox seems to have been the king of that for quite a while now. Is there any reason to believe that ESPN, uh, the NFL Network, or CBS can make a dent in their kind of hold on the ratings victory in those pregame shows? I don't think they. I don't. You know, I'm not sure they'll. I, I think Fox will once again be the most watched pregame show. A lot of that has to do with the fact that they have the NFC and they have big cities there. Right. Uh, CBS has made some ground though. I mean, James Brown was a really smart hire. 
uh, a number of years ago. It really helped stabilize that CBS show. The NFL today had its best ratings in a long, long time. Um, but I think Fox, by nature of the fact that they, they're in very big cities and that people like the continuity of Bradshaw Long and Johnson, um, I think that, that that pregame show will continue to be the most watched show. Um, I think probably out of all the pregame shows, yeah, I don't like saying something is the best because I think every pregame show does things really, really well, and then there are other parts of pregame shows that don't do well. It is the one show that I think, for the most part, week after week, is kind of the most entertaining to watch, and I think people, generally speaking, like the people who appear on that show. They have a great likability factor, and I think that's sort of Fox's secret there. NBC has great, great talent on their Football Night in America show, but it it seems like it's never it, almost maybe maybe there's too much talent. It it just seems to have never been the right mix, and I I think it's a show that kind of gets forgotten about a little bit. W- what do you think NBC can do to kind of improve that show? Well, I think the big NBC's biggest problem isn't there isn't something that they did. It's the fact that it's it's in the time slot. It's very hard to have a pregame show at 7.15 when if there are late games, most of the country's watching those late games. And then, you right. know, you sort of pop over, and you pull, let's say you pop over at 7.40, and they're already in the middle of their show, and it's very hard to pick up. That, to me, is NBC's biggest problem, is that people just don't watch the show from the beginning, so there's really no rhythm that they can get. you can get as a viewer. You're sort of just popping onto the show whenever your late game is done. Um, I think the talent's good. Costas, Dan Patrick, I think Dungey and Harrison have gotten a lot better. Uh, Mike Florio and you know my colleague Peter King are solid information guys. You know one of the things they've tried to do is they're going to try to involve Florio and King more into the broadcast. We'll see how that works out. Um, so I, I think they have good talent. I just think that the issue there is that they're never going to be like the perfect pregame show because you're never going to. It seems like for the most part on weeks you're not going to watch them from the beginning. Um, so I think they should just do what they have to do um, and really hope that games don't end late. But the problem is games end late, and for a lot of people, you know, if they're watching a Fox game, they're going to stay with the OT, and they're not going to move to the NBC game until the game actually starts. So uh, NBC's biggest problem is, again, something that's not, uh, that they really can't do anything about. It's the time of their show. Over the last, you know, five or so years, there's been all kinds of new advancements in technology that have made watching NFL games better and better, like, you know, the yellow line, for example, indicating first downs. Is there any kind of technical advancements that are coming up this year that are going to make the NFL broadcast better? Or is anyone trying anything new? The one thing that I've heard from a lot of broadcasters is you're going to get better audio. Uh, players are going to be mic'd better on the field. Um, and in talking to a number of television executives, um, that's where they think that the improvement is really, really going to be good, is that the sound audio over the last couple of years has not been very good because of players, player miking, and that's changed this year. So I would expect in terms of technology that to be better. And I think, again, I think in terms of more, more and more people are watching red zone coverage uh, than ever before. So that also changes the broadcast and that you have – a ton of people who really just don't even watch a game in full anymore. They just watch uh, touchdowns for their fantasy team. <laughs> um, so that's a big technology change. I mean, that's been around for a while, but uh, just anecdotally, I hear more and more people who are actually getting red zone and watching red zone. So that's another big thing. And then finally, obviously, I think you'll see Twitter more and more yeah, involved in broadcasts from sideline reporters 
to pregame stuff when people will tweet, uh, you know, networks will show some uh, some of the more interesting NFL tweets of the week and stuff, or NFL tweets on Sunday. So that's where I think too you'll see more technology. I think you'll see the use of Twitter be part of broadcast for sure. Well, I was just going to ask you because I noticed during the preseason, as some of the things that the networks have experimented with is during the games giving out a hashtag and then putting up some of the the user tweets that have come in with that hashtag. Do you think there's any place for that? Like, do you think that was just an experiment that didn't work out? Or do you think that there's that the country is somehow interested in what the common person thinks about these games? I, I don't generally think the fa- I, I think the idea of having fan comments on game broadcast, while it's, it, while it's cool to want to get fans involved, I don't think it works for whatever no. reason. I think, like, a scroll at the bottom... It just kind of seems like silly, and um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like as a viewer, if I want to see fans or my friends, like I'll go on Twitter and see what they have to say, as opposed to sort of seeing it on the big screen. I, I, if it's like an NFL player's tweet, to me at least there's like news value there. But it just it doesn't seem to work with CNN and news. Uh, unless it's breaking news, like and people, you know, they're they're just p- citizens who happen to be in places that reporters aren't. But in general, I don't think it works for whatever reason. I don't. It just doesn't seem to work as an entity. Like fans just hashtagging stuff, and then those Twitter uh, things like appearing on the screen. But you know, I kind of get the idea why they want to do it, and they want to have fans involved in broadcasts. So, you know, that's sort of the reasoning behind it. But I, I'm not sure Twitter is the perfect place for that. It seems like with the rule change of having every scoring play be reviewed, that there's a chance that these games could could stretch out a little bit, and the role of the announcers is going to be kind of a little bit more important because they're going to have to make sure that they can keep the flow of the game going despite the fact that it seemed like watching some of the preseason games that the games lacked a little bit of flow because of this expansion of replay. Uh, Who do you think is best equipped to kind of of adjust to that? In terms of what? In terms of the the different replays on... No, in in terms of like the broadcast itself and keeping the broadcast moving and keeping the broadcast stale and not losing viewers to red zone and things like that. Oh, okay, I got you. Well, you know, I think that's a a hard one because a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, how much you are interested in your own team versus your fantasy team. Right. Um, And that's a tricky one. Um, I think I know some Bills fans who watch Bills games beginning to end, even if it's 42 to 3. They'll keep the they'll they'll keep their game on the Bills game. Won't even watch a closer game. Um, you know, I hate to say it. I think the only I think the thing that keeps people in tune to a game is a game that's close. Um, if you're, I still think if you're a fan of a team and your team is playing in a tight game, if nothing else, you're going to watch the full fourth quarter. But you know, the more and more fantasy grows. I, I think these red zone channels are just going to grow because I think people love to see touchdowns. They love to, you know, sort of have a laptop on their, uh, you know, have a laptop on them and check to see how their fantasy teams are doing as they're watching games. And, you know, the red zone is like fantasy on crack. It's just yeah. basically like, uh, you know, you can't do better for it if you're really in a fantasy football. Um, so I think a lot of it just has to do with the viewer. Uh, but the best thing for view, the best thing for networks to keep their viewers um, engaged is, I hate to say it's to have a close game. Um, that's really your best chance to uh, to maintain that. If you have a blowout, it doesn't matter how great the announcers are. You, you, people are going to leave. 
One thing we talked about the last time you were on, which I believe was episode 14, this is episode 40, was the uh, merger between NBC and Comcast and how that would affect Versus, which is now going to be rebranded as the NFC Sports or the uh, NBC Sports Network. And then the second part of that is that one of the biggest developments from the CBA was this uh, expansion of the Thursday night package. We're going to get eight more Thursday night games. Is NBC going to be a big player in that with the NBC Sports Network, or do you think that there's someone else that's maybe more of a front-runner to nail that extra eight games? I think uh, my uh, pal John Oren of the Sports Business Journal just wrote a big piece on this where he handicapped all the potential uh, networks that could get that Thursday night package, and it seems to come down to two. One is the NBC Sports Network, which is now Versus, and the other is Turner, uh, so TNT, TNT, and it seems right. like those are the only two real players in this, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to this new potential eight-game package. Both places needed to establish, uh, like, an NFL brand on their networks. Obviously, uh, you see Versus is now loading up on NFL, um, kind of like shoulder programming. point. Right. Yeah, Florio and, and Peter yeah. King are going to have a show on there, too. So I think it's really, really important to them, and my sense is they'll bid the most. Uh, but it would be big for Turner. I mean, they're not, they might not have a basketball season. Um, so I, I think there's no doubt that, um, that they're going to be interested in it, too, and it would be a big thing for TNT. So those, to me, are the two um, places which are really going to be interested in it. You know, the big question is, I mean, is, is there – you know, I would say is how great a schedule is it going to be, but, you know, that's the thing, though. The NFL has become such a national sport that when it comes to fantasy, almost every game has meaning. So, you know, that's where it comes from. But that, it's going to, they're going to pay – someone's going to pay the NFL a ton of money. Uh, that contract's going to happen probably in the next couple of uh, months. Um, and I think the favorite is NBC, Comcast, and then the second favorite is Turner. And, you know, if NBC and Comcast get that, is there any bigger winner in the whole scenario than the National Hockey League? Uh, good question. I think, you know, uh, I think they'd be a winner, although, you know, you do wonder people who are watching the NFL on versus slash, uh, uh, you know, NBC Sports Network, would they stay for the NFL? I, I, I don't know. I, I think NFL fan. I just think the country is so big on the NFL that people are going to the NFL no matter what. But I'll say this. The fact that the NHL would get um, promoted on yep. on NBC programming, I think it's really, really good. Um, and I think it would help the network because um, if they pay that kind of money for the NFL, they're going to put more resources into the network, and that's going to be good for any programming on the network, including the NHL. I think the great, the best thing for the NHL this year is that if the NBA doesn't exist, I think you're going to get maybe some casual fans who don't watch hockey that close to maybe check it out because in some cities, it may be the biggest thing going. Great point. The sportscasters, Richard Deitch, he's is his third appearance on the show. We're really lucky to have a little bit of a relationship with him. Uh, thank you very much for kind of joining us here. I know it's a busy week for you with the U.S. Open and football starting. Uh, anything else we can look forward to? What are you working on? Anything going to be in the magazine? Or uh, are you going to have any role in the 2.0 version of the iPad software? Anything we can look forward to? Uh, you will catch In terms of the iPad, I'll always do a podcast with uh, a, so one of our writers who's right. – um, you know, who's got a big story that week. Um, so you can always catch me on the iPad there. I usually host our Soccer Roundtable podcast, so you can catch me there. And in terms of stuff coming up, uh, just tennis. I'll be running some kind of tennis over the weekend whenever this rain stops at the Open. And um, 
I think you can count on me to uh, um, take some, uh, uh, have some kind of take on the NFL broadcasters. Uh, maybe three weeks from now, two weeks from now, a month from now. I like to let these guys have a couple of shows. I don't like to judge shows just based on the first show or anything like that. So maybe take the temperature of uh, of the broadcasters uh, one month from now. So that's pretty much, I think, what's coming up for me. Last thing, have you ever? With your power ranking column, have you ever seen an entity with such a strong grasp on uh, on the countdown like we have with that number eleven spot just missing <laughs> the column every week? Like, have I've, you yeah, ever seen a I, power I, I, I like will, that? I will say this: I, in my, it's probably like been six years of doing the column. I've never seen anyone sort of hold the number 11 or 13 spot like the sportscasters. It's, right. it's almost, it's incredible. Like with all the newcomers that you would think might come through, you guys still figure out a way to, to maintain that 11 or 13 spot. So I, I mean, I think that that says something about you guys and your, I mean, you're not Djokovic, but your ability to still stay in the, you know, right outside the top ten is right. uh, is a testament. That's very solid on your guys' behalf. It's pretty incredible to just miss the column every month. You know, I mean, it takes a certain skill, but as we book people like Peter King and Adam Schefter and yourself and Jim Trotter tonight, you think there has to be something that could maybe elevate us. But then again, you know, I just maybe we're just number eleven, Gilbert Perot. You know, Buffalo Sabers. It's in the rafter. Maybe that's just our spot. It could be. I mean, you know what? Maybe that's just sort of, you know, like like the great Bills teams. You'll be remembered as a great team, but not a Super Bowl winning team. And that there is nobility in that. I mean, ultimately, in the end, only one team can hold the trophy. True. Yeah, you know, that sort of or ten uh, in this case. Say again, or ten. <laughs> or ten in this case, right? Right. But right. you know what? You guys can start your own power rankings and put yourself on there and make me eleven. That's how I might flip the script. Oh, interesting. All right, Richard Teich, it's uh it's a pleasure and an honor to have you and all jokes aside, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. You got it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, buddy. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. Thank you very much to Richard Deitch for joining us today. He always, always brings it. Yeah, he's fun. Good ha- my, a lot of energy. One of my favorite guests. Thank you to Richard for joining us. Five on fantasy today. We're going to do a few different things. One... If you still have a draft, we're going to give you a few sleepers and a few busts. Two, we're going to look forward to the start of the season. We're going to give you a few must-starts this week and a few must-sits. And then we're going to end it and we're going to kind of recap uh, the fantasy league that we did with some of our fans last Wednesday. We talked about the fact that we were doing it on the previous show. We're going to let you know how it ended. I'm going to start things off here with the number one. And let you know if you still have a draft. I have a few sleepers for you. Um, first, I think when the season started, the big sleeper at tight end was uh, the Saints tight end, Jimmy Graham. Right. I think he's kind of moved past that point of being a sleeper. Yeah, yeah. I think if you want to draft him, you're going to have to get him quick. If you're looking for a sleeper at tight end, I have a name for you. And that's Lance Kendricks. He plays for the St. Louis Rams. 
And he's a guy who's had a fantastic preseason. He's really seemed to click with Sam Bradford. They have a lot of wide receivers that are just kind of guys there. I think Kendricks could have a role in the offense similar to maybe a Gates in San Diego, where he's a go-to guy. Sam Bradford loved to throw to his tight ends at Oklahoma. He made a star out of Jermaine Gresham, who is now in Cincinnati with the Bengals, was the first pick in the NFL draft. And I think that Bradford will look to Kendricks in the NFL as he looked to Gresham in the NCAA. So I like Lance Kendricks as a sleeper at tight end. A sleeper at running back is a guy named Ben Tate. He was a big-time sleeper last season before he ended up tearing his ACL and opening the door for Adrian Foster to be the star that Adrian Foster became. Well, the problems that Adrian Foster... Arian. Arian Foster, excuse me. I always do that. (laughs) The problems that Arian Foster is having with his hamstring have kind of opened the door for Ben Tate to reemerge as a sleeper this year. Now, they have maybe mentioned that Derek Ward is going to start there. I don't know. I think Ben Tate clearly has more upside. Uh, he's looked like the better of the two players in the preseason. And he's someone who's going to get a chance to have touches in the first few weeks without Foster in the lineup. Right, and even if Ward does start, like you said, he's kind of a vanilla guy. You kind of know what you have out of him. Um, even if I found out tonight before a draft that – Foster is definitely going to be out, and Ward's definitely going to be the starter. I still think Tate's the guy to have in the long run. If he does well enough, I mean, they drafted him to to play. This is a little bit of a deeper sleeper. This isn't anyone you're going to draft in the second round uh, count on to be your number two back. He's someone that you can pick up. He might be a good flex option in the beginning of the year. He might be someone that you can count on earlier in the season. And he might be someone that will be a long-term player in Houston if Foster can't shake this hamstring injury, which is something that can tend to linger for running backs. Another sleeper I have is Kenny Britt. Kenny Britt is a sleeper because there were some questions going into the season about whether he would be punished by the NFL. He's not going to be punished. It's been said. He won't be suspended. Also, look at the quarterback situation there. That's really been upgraded. Instead of him having to count on Vince Young getting him the ball, he has... Matt Matt Hasselbeck Hasselbeck there as more of a veteran, someone who can make a star out of a guy like Kenny Britt. And, you know, if if Hasselbeck makes way to Locker at some point, I'm okay with that too. And I think whenever you have a young quarterback like a Locker, he's going to depend on his top guy even more. So I like Britt having a role as a really solid number two fantasy wide receiver, maybe more than the number three that he was drafted on earlier. Yeah, and Britt kind of showed last year that he is kind of a – he's a talented guy. He just kind of needs to stay out of his own way. He gets – he hurts himself more with his head than he does with his skills. So if he can just keep that straight, uh, he could be a star. And my last sleeper is a guy that if you're worried about Reggie Wayne and Dwayne Bowe because of the situations at quarterback on those teams, obviously Manning could miss some time. Uh, what is it, a rib injury with Castle? Right. If you're worried a bit about those two guys and you want someone to draft instead uh, in the middle of the third round, early fourth round, someone who's been drafted around the sixth, seventh round range is Stevie Johnson from the Bills. It's a really solid, solid number one guy who has had a great, great connection with the starting quarterback there, Ryan Fitzpatrick. So if you're looking for someone to draft instead of Reggie Wayne, who I still believe in a little bit, or Dwayne Bow. Dwayne Bow, that's a guy. 
All right, I took the same approach, but with the busts, um, these are guys that whose stock has slipped a little bit since the beginning of the fantasy draft season. Guys like Eli Manning. At the beginning of the year, I mean, he's never drafted as like a premier quarterback, even though he'll tell you he's up there with the likes of Brady. But he just he seems to be really missing Steve Smith. Um, he's overthrowing everybody. Yeah, he's not accurate. The timing's off. The may, Maybe with having some new receivers there, or at least guys that are now going to be starters, he's really missing not having those uh, OTAs and that type of work. But he just hasn't looked right all preseason. My second bust, uh, Mercedes Lewis and Mike Thomas. Uh, these are guys that were kind of maybe on some people's sleeper list, but with Luke McCown there, it's definitely more questionable, and I'm going to stick away, stay away from probably both of them. Next bust, Daniel Thomas. Daniel Thomas is definitely a guy that was on people's sleeper list earlier this season. Since then, Reggie Bush has all but been named the starter if he hasn't been officially named the starter. They've picked up Larry Johnson uh, from the streets, basically, and that just shows me they don't have a lot of trust in Thomas, so... He's a guy that's been slipping down my boards. I also have Dwayne Bow. If Castle's going to miss any amount of time, uh, for starters, I don't think Castle's that talented. I think he's gotten by. I mean, his numbers are fantastic, but the eyeball test just doesn't do it for me on him. Same with Dwayne Bow, just too many drops. Um, but if if you did, if I didn't like him before, I'm definitely going to like him less with some quarter. What's his name? Falco? Tyler Palco. Palco. Falco was the... A uh, left-hander from Pitt. Yeah, Falco was the guy from the replacements. And just to, just to clarify you, for you, in the Mike Thomas thing, sure, Larry Johnson didn't make the team. He was cut. Daniel Thomas, right. Right, but just the fact that they brought him in right. shows that they weren't 100% confident with what they had. Yeah, that's my fault. I forgot he was cut. Yeah. And my last one is Ryan Grant. Ryan Grant may not have been uh, anybody's sexy sleeper pick or anything like that, but he was a guy that was probably relied on to come back healthy come and back. get that <laughs> get that role back. They've come out and said publicly that it's going to be at best a split with Starks. So you probably don't want really either of them starting for you right but off. But you'd the rather bat. have Starks as more because of, of the more upside. upside, right? And Rob Demofsky is going to talk a little bit about that specific duo a little bit later in the show uh okay moving on many of you are might be saying what the hell are these guys talking about drafts for my drafts are over all right it's time to put in starting lineups for the first week isn't it first thing i'm gonna say first thing i'm gonna say you have all season to mess around and overthink your lineup (laughs) start your studs in week one you drafted them that high for a reason but if you're looking for a quarterback running back, or wide receiver to start this week. I'm going to give you a few names. First, I'm going to give you a quarterback, and I'm going to go with Josh Freeman. There's been a lot of talk about the Lions kind of being an improved team this year. Well, if one thing is going to hold the Lions back, it's going to be their secondary. It's terrible. Way back when we had Ty from lionsinwinter.com on the show, he mentioned that one thing that he hoped his team would improve was the secondary. They really didn't. Josh Freeman has a chance this week at home to play in a game that there could be a lot of points scored in and uh, put up some good fantasy numbers for you. My running back is a guy that, it's interesting, Peyton Hillis. It's interesting. Some people are real high in him. Some people have shied away. He really dropped quite a bit 
in the draft we're going to talk about later that we did with our, our fans. Well, if you did draft him, definitely play him this week. Yeah, absolutely. No reason to be scared about him this week. It's one of his best matchups of the season against Cincinnati, who's going to be terrible. And if the concern about him is that he wears out near fantasy playoffs, look, we're nowhere near that yet. So Peyton, Pil- Pey- Peyton Hillis is a must-start if he's on your roster. My last guy is the guy that people are going to rush to bench because Peyton Manning isn't playing, and that's Reggie Wayne. But does anyone think that Kerry Collins isn't going to throw for, I don't know, at worst 185 yards? Someone has to catch those passes, and veterans stick with veterans. I wouldn't be afraid to start Dallas Clark if I had him, and I'm not afraid to start Reggie Wayne. He's going to throw for some yards, and if you think that they're going to get killed by Houston, there might be some garbage time opportunities. So I still like Reggie Wayne this week anyway. Yeah, that's an example of like you already said. Start your studs. Don't overthink it. Um, And, again, this is all relative. If you have – Someone better than Hillis. If you somehow, I mean, you're not starting Hillis over Peterson, but uh, these are some of the hopefully less obvious starts and sits. My sits for this week: Eli Manning. I spoke about him as a bust. Uh, like I said, he's looked awful all preseason. I don't want to play him week one. I want to. You want to see it? Yeah, I want to see it. Steve and I talked a little bit before the podcast about how if you drafted Manning, chances are you probably also drafted a decent backup quarterback, someone like maybe Bradford or Stafford or uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, maybe. And those are guys that maybe you'd rather start over Eli this week, just just to see. Like, let's see what he's going to do when when the real games count. My running back sit this week is Joe Adai. I have him in a league and. It's a flex spot, and I think I'm going to start someone like a Kenny Britt over him. A die should get a ton of the work this week, but I think that Houston is going to dare Kerry Collins to throw. Good I point. think they're going to make him start Joe Adai, and I don't know if I trust Adai enough to be able to run on seven-man fronts. And my last sit is Jeremy Macklin. Again, this is – this case of just start your studs the first week doesn't really apply to him. We haven't seen him at all. He lost all that weight, supposedly put all that weight back on, but who knows what type of shape he's in. It's another let's see it kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah, let me see what you got. He's going to be on that great offense. If I can make it through one week without him, if he blows up, then fine. I'll have more confidence starting him in week two, but week one I'm not touching him. All right, fifth thing here in five on fantasy. We mentioned it last week. Some of our listeners, eight of them to be exact, and Don and I had a fantasy draft last Wednesday. We did it at 9.30. Don and I were at my place on our laptops. And we had a great time uh, doing the draft with the fans. The chat room was really active. Yeah, a lot of uh, college uh, trash talk. A lot of college trash talk. We got a guy going to Penn State, a guy going to Texas. We got an Oklahoma fan in there besides myself. So it was a lot of college trash talk. Um, my vote for best name has to go to Pittsburgh Feelers. They got the best icon, too. Yeah. <laughs> so good job, Pittsburgh Feelers. I like it. Uh, I went with Backspacers. Don is Don like sports. How did you think you did, Don? I like my team. Uh, I think I told you through about six rounds that I absolutely loved my team. And then the running back depth was absolutely gone. And that's where my team is very lacking. Uh, like I, I still like my starting lineup. I think I'll have a little bit of trouble if... Give us some names. I ended up with Ray Rice first with my 
fourth pick. Uh, I've got Fitzgerald and Jennings, so my receiver is going to be solid. Peyton Hillis, who you talked about, I got in the fourth round. Dallas Clark, who I like a little bit less now, but still he'll get his catches. Uh, Stevie Johnson, Mario Manningham, some of those sleeper wide receivers. Uh, Matt Schaub is my starting quarterback, who fell to the eighth round, which I thought was good. And then we start to talk about my lack of depth at running back. My third running back is going to be Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis, mm. who I don't love. Uh, I wasn't overly happy to make the pick, but I needed a body. And then I have Ryan Terrain, who I also don't love. I have Steven Ridley, so hopefully when he comes back healthy, he can kind of blow up. But and I have Vereen. Yeah, you have Vereen. I think there were four, four Patriots, Patriots back, running backs drafted. Well, the thing about this is we did 16 rounds, so we have deep benches. We do. And it's also a PPR league with two flex spots. Uh, so I decided to load up on wide receivers early. I picked Roddy White, Calvin Johnson, Marquise Colston, and Kenny Britt fairly early. I plan to start all four of them, kind of loading up on PPR wide receivers. Uh, my running backs aren't as strong, but I thought they ended up decent uh, with Felix Jones and LeGarrette Blount as my starters. Uh, Matt Ryan is my starting quarterback. Mercedes Lewis my tight end, who maybe a lot like Don, I'm a little disappointed in the quarterback situation there, but still kind of will trust Lewis to uh, hold the fort down at tight end. If not, I can probably find someone on the waiver wire if need be. Yeah, sometimes tight ends turn into be safety valves too for their quarterbacks. And I kind of like my bench. Um, I got Bradford as a backup quarterback. I got Halu, Starks, Tate, and Vereen as kind of upside running backs. And then I also have Pierre Thomas. It's kind of a safer plug veteran in. Right. plug in back who also catches a lot of passes. He's the big screen pass back in New Orleans. So good for a PPR. And uh, I don't have much depth at receiver. I have the really good four, but then I kind of drop off with only having Robert Meacham and Jerome Simpson from Cincinnati on my bench. So maybe my weakness, kind of like you're a little weak at backup running back, I really stocked my bench up with upside back so i don't have a lot of depth at wide receiver but i'm gonna count on my four studs to kind of carry that and if i need to i can only start three three uh three wide receivers each week and plug in pierre thomas people talk about hand- a nice flex yeah people talk about handcuffs a lot typically when it has to do with running backs i realized that i handcuffed greg jennings <laughs> by drafting two other Wide receivers out of Green Bay and Jordy Nelson and James Jones. I guess the thought there was just that I I know that's going to be an offense that throws a lot, and I want to have <laughs> as many players as I can, especially if Jennings goes down. What about the fans? Was there a team you really liked? I know in the chat room, the Penn State scholarly ALCS uh, were bragging about their team. They have Aaron Rodgers at QB, Steve Jackson, Frank Gore at running back, Jeremy Macklin, Mike Williams at wide receiver. Tight end is Brandon Pettigrew. And in, right now in his two flex spots, he has Javid Best and Lance Kendricks. He has – well, that's a interesting flex. He does he have Javid Best and uh, Fred Jackson and Steve Smith. Um, he's got a lot of depth. The one thing I was we talked about after the draft was I was pretty impressed with everybody, actually. I don't yeah. think there's – there's really not a terrible team out there. Our fans stepped it up, I thought. They did really well. Uh, one guy... Couldn't even make it. Couldn't make it, but he set his, his cheat sheet. Or and whatever. he ended up with a decent team. His he team's very Vic. good, yeah. He has Vic, Benson, Mendenhall. Then he has Harvin, Austin. He has Gates. Gates, yep. Right now he has Lynch and Wells in his flex spots. I thought he did really well so for not being well there. For not being there. He also has Jacoby Ford, 
who's someone I raved about. I think he's startable. Crabtree, um, Anthony Armstrong. He's got JT a nice team. JT Brawley, our buddy, he, he had a little pop problem with his power. Kept going on and off <laughs> yeah. on him. And he ended up with an okay team. He has Freeman, Turner, Foster, who he's going to have to sub out this week. He has Brandon Marshall and Knicks, who I'm high on both of them. Colin Wenslow, he has Reggie Bush, who he's a f- big Dolphins fan, and Tim Hightower. Yeah, I, like like I said, I th- I think they did really well. Anyone I don't, you want to pick on? Anyone want to pick on? Um, what you talking about? Hillis took Mark Ingram in the seventh round. I'm not sure if there was much more depth than that, but that's his second running back. So he's got Daniel Thomas, then he's got Demarco Murray, Javon Ringer, Delone Carter. So he's got a few guys for upside there, but. Having to start, I mean, you know, as a Saints, if anyone was going to be high on Mark Ingram, it would be you. And even you said there's just kind of too many, not there. enough balls to go around there. And Eva Tarvis Jackson has Joseph Adai and Darren McFadden as his backs. He also has Brandon Lloyd, who I don't love, and Rob Gronkowski as his flex back guys right now. Um, I don't see anyone jumping out to me on his bench. I think Vernon Davis was a little bit of an early pick. He has a lot of veterans on his bench. He's got Ronnie Brown, Michael Bush, Ricky Williams, Derek Mason, Mike Williams, Chris Cooley. A lot of tight ends drafted. That might be a team I don't love. So, But going into week one, uh, it looks like the first two people with a chance to get airtime next week are what you talking about, Hillis, who I play, and Penn State. Penn State. ALCS. Yep, those are the first two with a chance to get a little airtime. If you beat us in this league, you get five minutes to promote your Twitter or anything else you want to do. On us. Yeah. Make fun of us uh, on the show. Yeah, we probably won't usually talk this in-depth about our specific teams, but this will be the league we reference when it comes to like, this one and the expert waivers, one. trades. Yeah. Right, and we also have uh, So we got a 10-team league and a 16-team league, and those are the teams that we'll use to reference for Waiver moves and sleepers, like you said. So that's going to wrap up 5 on Fantasy for today. We're going to take a break, and we're so lucky to be joined. I'm really excited by Jim Trotter from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, to preview the NFL season. And then we'll be back after that to preview our blogs that will be posted on Wednesday, the day before the start of the NFL season, or Thursday. Uh, My 32 things and Don's 32 run-on sentences. So that's what's coming up. We're going to take a break. Be right back with Jim Trotter. Our next guest is from San Diego, California. And is a graduate of Howard University. He spent over 18 years at the San Diego Union Tribune and worked on the Chargers beat for 10 of those years. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated as a senior writer. He has been a contributor for ESPN's First Take and the NBC affiliate in San Diego. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented Jim Trotter. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty good. I have been kind of... Twitter stalking you for the last, <laughs> oh, I don't know, six or so weeks, hoping to have you on before this moment. And the moment I'm speaking of is, you know, being two days away from the start of the NFL season. And I know 
kind of with the way the off season went and kind of what off season? Right, exactly. Spending the whole summer being worried about if there was going to be a league and all that. It seems like everyone's a little bit more excited for the preseason this year. You spent a lot of or for the regular season, excuse me. You spent a lot of time uh, once the collective bargaining agreement was signed, going to some different training camps. Did anything stick out uh, during your journey of the training camps? Is there anything that you've seen live that makes you feel different about a team than you did before you got to that training camp? Um, I, I don't know that anything jumped out at me. The thing that was most interesting to me is that um, the way teams approach training camp after not having an off season and having no contact with their players you know, you had some coaches who wanted to hit the ground running and they were full contact, full speed. And you had other coaches who wanted to sort of bring their players along slowly because their players had dip, different levels of fitness. So that was kind of what jumped out at me. Um, I visited all of the Western camps, the AFC West and the NFC West. And, you know, if there was one team that I think kind of caught my attention a little just in terms of the change in culture, it was Denver. Um, when you look at that team now with, with Josh McDaniels gone, John Fox in there, uh, you see some of the things that, that they're trying to do, that the Broncos are trying to do, and you see Elvis Doomerville come back and returning to the position that he's most comfortable at, a defensive end. You see Robert Ayers moving the defensive end, a position he's most comfortable at. You see Lonnie Miller there who gives him that outside 4-3 linebacker pass rush that they haven't had in quite some time. Um so I think if there's one team that, that I'm mildly, mildly intrigued with, it would be Denver because I know they're going to try and run the ball, they're going to try and play defense, and they're going to try and win games in the fourth quarter, which is vastly different from how it was done under Josh. Yeah, I was going to say, is that the team that gave you the biggest impression of a real change of culture? I mean, obviously with Josh, they threw the ball a lot more. Now with John Fox, we know from his time in Carolina, he likes to run the ball, play defense. Was that the biggest kind of change of culture that you've seen? Yeah, I definitely think so, because for the most part, the rest of the West, with the exception of the 49ers, um, it was status quo. So, you know, you have Jim Harbaugh coming in in, in San Francisco, and, uh, you know, he brought a lot of college enthusiasm with him. He brought a very physical camp. Um, but at the same time, you know, the personnel is pretty much the same. The schemes aren't vastly different, particularly from a defensive standpoint. So, you know, it wasn't anything that, that completely jumped out at me. But in Denver, you know, there's just a totally different mindset and culture about how they want to approach games. Whereas Josh would normally say, you know, we're going to attack the weak points of the defense. Uh, we're going to take what they give us, that sort of thing. What you hear in Denver is that, hey, we're going to run the ball. We're going to play defense. We're going to be smart. Um, we're going to have ball security. And we're going to try and win games at the end. Let's stay in that division for right now, and I want to talk about the Chiefs for a second. Are they a team that you look at as being one that was in the playoffs last year that could take a giant step back this year? Well, I think they could take a step back in terms of record, but I think they'll be a better team. And I know some people say, what does that mean? Well, I mean, last year they didn't play many teams that had 10 wins the previous year. This, this year, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, I'd have to do my math again, but I, I believe they played 10 teams that had either eight to ten teams that had ten or more wins last year. And, you know, that's dramatically different. And now how do you handle success? You know, they, they, their focus in the offseason was on upgrading their passing game. Well, Jonathan Baldwin fractures a thumb 
in a locker room fight, and Tony Moyaki tears the knee ligaments out for the year. So there are two guys that they were counting on uh, to take them to the next level who one won't be there at all this year, and the other one we don't know exactly when he's going to be ready, and even from a developmental standpoint how long it will take him to be able to contribute because, as we know, rookie receivers usually have one of the toughest transitions to the NFL. So I think, yes, I think Kansas City can be a better team, but I think the record could be worse. If Matt Castle isn't ready to play, can they? Are they really like? Are they really going to start Tyler Palco? Uh, they don't have much other choice. But I anticipate that Matt will be ready to play. Okay. Uh, he took the reps in, in practice. Um, you know, when they were out there yesterday, uh, I fully anticipate that, that he'll be out there on Sunday. The Raiders won six games in the division last year, but they didn't do much winning outside of it. Is there any indication no, that they're ready to take another step? There's no, you know, they're one of the more curious teams because within the division they they were monsters. I mean, they were six and zero. They beat up everybody they played. I mean, you talk to opponents and physically they talk about just how after you play the Raiders, you know, your body needs time to recover. And one of the more mind-boggling stats to me was that I think they limited divisional opponents to like eighty-some-odd yards rushing. But outside the division, they gave up roughly 160-some-odd yards rushing, so it was almost double. I just I don't understand that. And when I put that question to Richard Seymour and some others, you got a lot of shrugs, and nobody really knew what to make of it. So, you know, I think Oakland has the personnel to, uh, to take a step forward, but I just I don't think they have the depth, and I don't think that they can afford an injury, and, and therefore I think the Raiders wind up finishing third in the division, in my opinion. Right there where you are in San Diego, uh, the Chargers were the strangest team in the league last year. First in offense, first in defense, obviously plagued by horrendous special teams. This year, you know, Phillip Rivers is a year older. What do you, how do you think, is the Chargers the team to beat in that division this year? Yes, I think they're the team to beat. Now, what does that mean? None of us know. I, they had won four straight division titles before last year. The thing that bothers me about San Diego is you look at since North Turner's come in and the arrow's been trending downward every year. I mean, he inherited a 14-2 and team that had 11 Pro Bowlers. His first year they win two playoff games. The next year they win one. The next year they're knocked out in their opener. And last year they didn't even get to the playoffs. So I think this is a critical year for Norv. I think he has to not only get to the playoffs but make some noise, or I think his job could be in jeopardy. Now, the problem under Norv in part, uh, during his four years there is that they've had slow starts. They've been two and three every year that he's been there. This year the schedule sets up really well for them to get out of the gate fast, potentially at five and one. So if they don't get off to a quick start, then I think the pressure is going to build and there could be some it, there could be issues there. But to me, this is the year there are no excuses for them. I mean, there are no distractions from a contractual standpoint. Last year you had Marcus McNeil and Vincent Jackson right. who were holding out. They're there now. Everybody's in camp. Ryan Matthews is a year older, so they believe he should be more more mature and have more of a professional approach to his job. Uh, Philip Rivers is lights out, as we know. I, I think he's going to wind up being MVP of the league this year. I think he's going to put up incredible numbers. Uh, they changed defensive coordinators after Ron Rivera left, but Greg Minutsky was here before he went to San, or San Francisco as a defensive coordinator. He comes back now. And rather than have the players learn his terminology, he learned theirs. So 
so as not to create any disruption. So I think everything is in place for San Diego to get off to a fast start and to be one of those teams at the end. Now, I will say this. The only thing I don't like about this team is that every time it seems to run up against teams that are physical and that are bullies, they seem to have trouble with those clubs. And they're going to have to prove to me that they've changed. I want to follow up for a second on Ryan Matthews. So I was going to ask you about him before you mentioned him. Is he ready to be an NFL running back and kind of take some of the pressure off of the passing game? You mentioned that he's going to have a more professional right. approach this year. Is he a 30-carry guy in this league? No, I don't think he's a 30-carry guy. Um, here's the other thing with Ryan. They, the, the organization was disappointed with him last year. Um, they felt that he didn't have the impact that they wanted. More than that, they felt that he was young, coming out of school a year early, and didn't understand what it meant to be a professional and how to approach being a professional. The other issue with Ryan is pass protection. He's not very good at it. And I think there was one game, as uh, a matter of fact, the last preseason game where they played Seattle, and you saw the best of, of Ryan Matthews and the worst. He whipped on a pass protection block that resulted in a sack of fumble and set up the Seattle touchdown, but then he had a 56-yard touchdown run. So in essence, you're going to have to take the good with the bad with him. You know, they're looking for a way to replace Darren Sproles on third down. North Turner initially thought, at least when I talked to him early in camp, that Ryan could get a lot of those carries. He felt that he had grown up some. He could pick up some of that slack. But I don't think the Chargers can use Ryan Matthews on third down or passing situations um, because the threat isn't there of, of confusing the defense from the standpoint of if he's in there, you know he's not going to pass protect because he's simply not good at it. So you can adjust your defense accordingly. So I think from that standpoint, they're going to try and get Ryan off as a runner, but I think you're going to see a lot of, of Mike Tolbert and a lot of Jacob Hester on third down and passing situations. Yeah, I was going to say, Tolbert uh, is maybe the guy that they're going to settle on for those third down, but you think Hester will work in there too? I think he could. I mean, he's got versatility. He's a good blocker. He can also catch the ball. Um, I can tell you this, that I've talked to a couple of coaches who told me that they think the loss of Darren Sproles is big because they think it makes it easier to prepare for San Diego in passing situations. So um, until someone else on that team steps up and fills that role, we'll see what happens. I'm interested to talk with you a little bit about the NFC West as, all, as well. I think we, we kind of covered the AFC West there. The Rams are really interesting to me, and I think when talking about the Rams, who are in it right till the end last year, the biggest question is, have they surrounded Sam Bradford with enough talent to allow him to take the next step from having a good rookie year to being a star quarterback in the league? I think they've upgraded the talent, but I think what you don't take into account is um, he's learning a new system this year, and it takes some time to learn and get comfortable in Josh McDaniel's system. Now, if they rely more on Steven Jackson or Josh can be more balanced, perhaps it makes it easier on Sam. But I think going out and getting a Mike Sims Walker was big. Going out and get, getting drafting Kendricks at tight end was big. It's another weapon. Um, and the fact that they released Donnie Avery tells you that they like some of these young people that they have now. So I think there are more weapons for Sam, and I think adding Cadillac Williams, adding Jarius Norwood helps get, will help give Steven Jackson a rest. The problem I see for the Rams is just the schedule is brutal early. I mean, they've got the NFC East. They open with Philadelphia. I think they only have one division game in the first half of the season. It's just wow. 
you know, there's a murderer's row in there. Now, if they can get through that even close to 500, then I think they've got a very good chance of claiming the division or being in the hunt for it because, uh, if I remember right, um, five of their six divisional games come after the midpoint of the season, which means that they're going to have a chance to make up ground on any divisional teams that would be in front of them. So, uh, so I think St. Louis will, could be around, but the problem again in that division is I see Arizona with a very favorable schedule, both early and late. You know, they get they open uh, potentially with teams that they could 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 beat the first three teams they could beat. They'd be three and zero, and then four of their final five games are at home. So it's favorable early, it's favorable late, and in that division, you know, it's not going to take many wins to win it. Is uh, Kevin Cobb going to fit into what the Cardinals try to do? And is Larry Fitzgerald possibly the happiest guy in the league right now between the contract and the huge upgrade that his team has made at quarterback? Oh, without a doubt. I, I can tell you he's more happy about Cobb right now than even the contract. You know, I was out there at camp, and, and that's all anyone talked about is that they hadn't seen Larry this happy in quite some time. And we talked about it, and he said, you know, it was a really tough year on him last year because – Receivers get measured by numbers, and he said it's the one position where somebody else has to get you the ball. So he said you could beat somebody on a route, but that doesn't show up in the statistics. So no question Larry's happy, and no question I think Kevin's going to fit in. The question is can he stay healthy? He had the concussion issue in Philadelphia. Um, there are some folks who think that, that he might be a little brittle. We'll see. But I know this. From everyone I've talked to there, he's a gym rat. He's consumed with the game. He wants to be good, if not great. And I think he and Larry are going to work well together. I remember reading uh, when the Ryan Williams injury happened that uh, the team was really disappointed that he was someone who had really made a good impression in the locker room that a lot of people had rallied around. And it seems like that the biggest opportunity out there with the Cardinals now is for Beanie Wells to really step up. Tim Hightower's in Washington. Ryan Matthews is injured. It seems like this is the year where Hightower needs to either prove that, or I'm sorry, that where Wells needs to either prove that he can be a starting back of the NFL or move on. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with that. I also think we're going to see a lot of Chester Taylor, too, um, because they needed a veteran back behind Beanie because Beanie has a history of injuries and he has a history of fumbles, which both are, that's not a good combination for an NFL running back. So, you know, I know that they like Chester Taylor. I think we'll see some of him. How much does he have left? I don't know, but I know that he will get some playing time. He's smart. Uh, he's versatile. So I think this is a career year for Beanie. I think he's got to prove it now. Um, but, you know, there are question marks on him. Let's be honest about it. And he's got to race those. Another guy in the division with a lot of question marks is Alex Smith. The 49ers uh, <laughs> drafted a quarterback this year, although it does seem like they're going to give – Alex Smith the start. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, who they decided not to pick, is flourishing and one of the best players in the league. Alex Smith has never reached that point. Is there any reason to think that Alex Smith can do anything in this season? Or are they just kind of letting him play while the rookie that they drafted kind of catches up and makes up for lost time without the offseason? Look, I'll tell you. I, I mean, I, we've seen Alex since, what, 2005? I mean, that's in my opinion, that's more than enough time to know what a guy has or doesn't have. And I think Alex is what he is, and I don't think we're going to see any sort of breakout career year. As for Kaepernick, you know, I was told early on that they were hoping to bring him along, 
slowly at first, but then have him take over at some point this season. But I'll tell you this, from what I saw in the preseason, he's not even close to being ready. I mean, he was absolutely awful in the game against Seattle uh, to end the preseason. You know, he underthrew one ball that was intercepted, and he stared down a slant pattern on another that was intercepted. So he's just not ready. Um, so I, in my opinion, I think it's going to be a very long year uh, for San Francisco. I think that the 49ers should be very happy that they're opening up against uh, Seattle because Seattle might be one of the few teams, at least early in the year, that uh, is going to be in more disarray than, than San Francisco. Yeah, Pete Carroll has really overturned that roster in the last couple seasons. And the fantasy guys that come on the show tell us, stay away from anyone in a Seahawks uniform. Uh why is it that everyone's so down on the Seahawks? They made the playoffs last year, won a playoff game, uh, defeating the Saints. Uh, what is it about that team between the end of last season and this season? Uh, it seems like they should be moving forward in Pete Carroll's second year, not moving backwards. No, they're still trying to. First of all, they were a year ahead of, or, or two years ahead of schedule last year. Um, and they did it with patchwork veterans last year. Now they're trying to build through the draft. And one of the things that you're seeing is on the offensive line, it's very young. I mean, they're talking about starting two rookies, a second-year guy, a third-year guy who missed all but the first uh, two quarters of last season, and one veteran who's coming over from another team. That's, that's, a, that's a tough combination to win with in this league. Now, you put those guys in front of Tavares Jackson, who has never proven himself at the NFL level. You've got Sidney Rice, who's still banged up. Um, and then on the other side, you've got Mike Williams, who really doesn't scare people. I mean, it's not a good combination on offense. And on defense, they're breaking in new people at linebacker as well as in secondary. So I really believe that next year is going to be the year that we start to see Seattle take shape under Pete Carroll in terms of the way that he and GM John Schneider want to build the team. But this year, I just don't see it. I think it's going to be a very tough year for the Seahawks. The sportscasters are here with NFL senior writer at Sports Illustrated, Jim Trotter. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at SI underscore Jim Trotter. Uh, I'm a big, huge fan of Sports Illustrated. Um, and the NFL preview issue was downloaded onto my iPod by about 12.05 last week on uh, Tuesday night. And you and Peter King did a pretty interesting uh, kind of cover story talking about uh, the evolution of defenses in the NFL. And how defenses. Uh, totally, let me stop you. It was totally okay. Peter. I had nothing to do with it, so he gets all the credit for it. He gets it. all the credit for that. Okay. Well, what is your thought on uh, the, the angle that the uh, Sports Illustrated preview issue took there with the evolution of defenses and how defenses are trying to catch up and do different things to catch up to these uh, huge offensive numbers we've seen in the last few years of the league? Oh, they have to. I, I mean, every, for the most part, every rule change. Um, or every significant adjustment or, or, or rules change to the NFL has benefited the offense. So defenses have to come up with new ways to attack, to create confusion, um, to create mayhem, all of that. So um, I, I think it takes special people, creative people, outside-the-box people like Rex Ryan, you know, Greg Williams, these others, um, to sort of balance the scales, if you will, uh, because clearly the league wants scoring because it says fans want scoring and fans want it to be entertained. And let's face it, as much as a purist might say a 10-7 game is a great game, for many fans, 
it's boring um, because they want to see touchdowns. So defenses have to be very creative, you know, to sort of level the, the playing field. As a writer, what are some things that you're interested in seeing play out in the beginning of the football season? Maybe a few things that are on your mind as potential ideas that if they play out a certain way could work into bigger columns as the season goes on. Oh, yeah, The standard stuff. I mean, there are no secrets. I want to see how Philadelphia plays with all of the hype that has surrounded the Eagles uh, this offseason, or I'm sorry, during training camp. You know, I want to see how Albert Hainsworth plays in New England. You know, Bill Belichick has brought him along very slowly. Uh, and I believe that if he is even close to his form of two years ago, um, he could be the steal of the offseason. Another guy who could be the steal of the offseason is Bob Sanders, if he can stay healthy for a full year. I think he's played, what, six or nine games over the last three years. Um, but when he's on the field, he's a force, he's a factor. So that's interesting. Everyone's going to be watching Peyton Manning at this point, um, and understandably so. I, I mean, you can go down, you can go down uh, the list with each team, and there's a storyline there that um, you know that could be compelling or intriguing, particularly people in those cities. So uh, we could do each team, and you'd find one. I know special teams isn't usually uh, compelling or intriguing, but what do you think about the kickoff rule? Is that an over-adjustment, you think? I don't think so. I think that the league is concerned about uh, injuries and it's concerned about liability. I think you're starting to see more players retired and even some active file lawsuits against the league over its treatment of concussions. Um, when you see Joe Thomas put his name on a lawsuit, you know, the league is scared about that stuff. So from that standpoint, I think it's trying to be proactive with, you know, the injury situation and whatnot. And, and I can't say that I totally blame them. I mean, for us, who have grown up with the kickoff being such a big part of the game, you know, the reality is that it's changing. Um, and when Roger Goodell intimated or suggested a few years back that we might one day see an NFL where there are no three-point stances and we all laughed and said, ah, that's crazy, it'll never happen, I'll tell you what, I'm more of the mind that it will happen than it won't. What do you think, to, to follow up on the rule changes, how do you think the uh, replay is going to work out these kinks that they seem to have in the offseason with the reviewing every scoring play. It seemed to take a little it. bit of a flow out of the game, wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I hate it. Yeah. I, I, think, I think you should. If, if you want to do something to that effect, then give the coaches another challenge then. But to say that you're going to replay every touchdown, I mean, to me it's going to become like baseball where you have these drawn-out games with managers walking to the mound you know, every other batter to discuss strategy. It's, it's ridiculous. So, um, you know, there are certain touchdowns that you know are controversial, and, and, and if there's a need to be challenged, let a coach challenge it. But don't hold us all up while we go through, you know, reviewing what's an obvious touchdown. It, it just, I think it, it kills the flow of the game, in my opinion. Again, the sportscasters are here with senior writer at Sports Illustrated, Jim Trotter. I mentioned before you can find him at SI underscore Jim Trotter. And for the last few minutes here, I want to talk to you a little bit about Twitter. I know you're a guy who seems to enjoy it, uses it quite a bit, sends out a lot of tweets. I'll follow you quite intently. How do you think uh, Twitter has impacted what you do as a football writer? Oh, it's, it's tremendous now. I think now when you see breaking news, for the most part, the first part you're going to see it is on Twitter. And the thing that's so interesting to me is to hear how many fans talk about it's replaced basically 
um, you know, national news for them. You know, whereas you might have once watched, and I'm not saying you've cut it out completely, but where you may have been beholden ESPN or CNN or Fox or whoever, now you'd be surprised how many people tell me they get their news off of Twitter. And then if there's a story they're interested in, then they go and they click on it or they go to it. So uh, it, it, it's made a huge adjustment in terms of how we cover the league and whatnot. Sports Illustrated has kind of been trying to stay ahead of the curve with the technology I mentioned. I love to read the magazine on the iPad, and I know Sports Illustrated is getting ready to launch uh, 2.0 of their iPad app. Have you uh, spent any time with the magazine on the iPad? Do you have any opinion on uh, kind of the evolution of the magazine through the iPad and other technology? I'll tell you the truth. I'm I'm picking up my first iPad this week. So I, oh, I, congratulations. I, I, can't, I can't speak to it at all. Now you're gonna love it. It's a it's a great it's a great tool, and you're gonna love the way that Sports Illustrated jumps off of it. It's really been one of the I've had the iPad uh, for about a year now, and one of the things that I think I love most about it is reading magazines, especially Sports Illustrated. But uh, we well, one of the things I want to yeah. find out is that if in any way it can replace the laptop, um, because my concern was always. You've got so many gadgets now. You would have a laptop. You would have a, an iPad. You would have your cell phone. And in some respects, they all do the same thing with some jobs. Right. And so, you know, for someone like me who travels so much, you just get tired of lugging around everything. And so what I'm trying to find out is that if there is a way that the iPad can be used basically to some degree to replace the laptop. I'll tell you what. I think there's a real easy way you can replace your iTop or your, your laptop with an iPad, and that is you just have to buy an accessory, which is a nice, a beautiful case that comes with a Bluetooth keyboard. You can keep your iPad in there. You have a keyboard. You can type your stories, and it will be a beautiful, uh, beautiful travel companion with you. And where do you store your stories? Where do you store your stories? You can save them right on the hard drive. You, I mean, you, have up to th you can get up to a 64-gigabyte iPad. Okay. You know, or you can download an app called Dropbox, which is a free app, and it basically you can save your stories in the cloud, so to speak. And then when you're home and you're on your computer, then you can retrieve it from that cloud. Perfect. So Dropbox Perfect. will be your friend as well. But you're going to yeah, love I'm the iPad. From you as you've learned from me today. Yeah, hey, that, that's great. Uh, Jim Trotter, we really appreciate the time. I know how valuable it is to uh, an NFL writer at this time of the year. And I know it's a little bit later in your day, but we really appreciate you taking out the time to talk to us. And uh, hopefully we can do it again soon sometime. All right, my pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Trotter. You got it.
right, there's a little taste of what you might have missed if you weren't at Pearl Jam 20. A little bit of an impromptu Temple of the Dog reunion featuring all of the original players from that great album. I want to thank Jim Trotter. I've been chasing him down for quite a while. I want to thank him for finally making his first appearance on the Sportscasters. And what we're going to do here to kind of go along with our preview of the NFL season, Don and I have been both working on NFL preview blogs. I'm calling mine 32 things. I'm going to have one thing about each of the 32 NFL teams. And Don is calling his 32 run-on sentences. Basically, again, the same idea. He's going to have 32 things, one about each of the NFL teams. And we're going to give you a little preview of those blogs and kind of what each thing is going to be like. And you can find these on thesportscasters.blogspot.com. Okay? Sportscasters.blogspot.com. I'm going to kick it off with my beloved Saints. And what I wrote about the Saints is this. As a fan of the team, anything less than a return to the Super Bowl this year will be a disappointment. And, uh, you know, last year I gave the team a little bit of a pass. And I think the big thing about the team last year was that it was the longest Super Bowl celebration of all time. (laughs) And it kind of maybe extended into the season. Well, this year it was time to be back down to business. I like the moves that they made. They've improved themselves. They did great at the draft, getting Cameron Jordan and Mark Ingram. Both of them should play and impact the team. They did a great job in free agency, bringing in Sean Rogers, um, Franklin, who are going to help at defensive tackle. And I think it's time for the team to return to the form that they showed in 2010. It was a little bit of a more of a down year last year. And I think it's time to take the division back from the Falcons. And I will be disappointed in anything less than a return to the Super Bowl. Like Steve said, mine's going to uh, be called 32 run-on sentences. Uh, I'm going to try to preview the season for each team in one sentence, but they're going to probably all be long. My uh, beloved, I guess, Buffalo Bills will be the first one. I'll give you a little sample. Uh, the Bills return to Jerron-era form and win six or seven games while the city collectively wonders if that's a good thing. Yeah, that I actually heard uh, old pal of the podcast, Aaron Schatz, on with a local Buffalo radio station today, and he said that their simulations have the Bills as a 7-9 team, making the playoffs 16% of the time. And he said that's about what you expect with these simulations when you have a really mediocre team. Right. And I think that there was some outlets that picked them earlier in the offseason to be a horrible team. And I think Todd and I both agree that they, they're going to be closer to mediocre than horrible. They did move up on ESPN's power ranking from 31 to 30 today. Oh, very nice. So someone did something wrong or they showed so much in the preseason or something. But shows you what preseason power rankings mean. As another preview to my 32 Things blog, for the New York Giants, Mark Herzlich, former Boston College linebacker and cancer survivor, made the team as an undrafted free agent. That's awesome. One of the big reasons he made the team is because of his commitment to special teams. He says that he loves special teams, and that's a big reason why he made the team. Also, it's kind of a surprise twist. One of his best friends and a former ACC linebacker ended up tearing his ACL towards the end of the preseason, maybe opening up a spot for Mark 
to make the team, and I would be disappointed if anyone but Mark runs out of the tunnel with the U.S. flag on 9-11 in New York City. Uh, My preview of the Packers in one sentence. The world champs keep on rolling as their exciting offense gets even better with a full year of James Starks and the return of Jermichael Finley. Uh, remember, Jermichael Finley was hurt, I think, in game one or two last year. Very early. And he's a monster. He's great. Aaron Rodgers looks for him a lot. That's a team that it's hard to see many areas in which they got worse. And with that offense and that quarterback, it, I'm sure they're thinking the same thing as you are about the Saints. The only thing really I think they have to worry about is a hangover of some sort. Last one here. Kansas City Chiefs are entering the regular season with Tyler Palco as their backup quarterback. I want to mention ourlads.com. They got a plug in Peter King's Monday Morning Quarterback. Probably a much better plug than this one. (laughs) But ourlads.com is a great resource for depth charts. And the Kansas City Chiefs are entering the season with Tyler Palco as their backup quarterback, which means that without without Matt Castle, which could be the situation this week, they're going to have to play him in games or a game. He's a left-handed quarterback from Pitt. He's undersized. He spent time on the New Orleans Saints practice squad. He was originally an undrafted uh, free agent by the Saints. He has a long list of being waived, being activated, being waived. <laughs> he spent time at Arizona, Pittsburgh, and now Kansas City. And I think my prediction for the Chiefs is they will be the team that is most likely a playoff team last year that is most likely – to miss the playoffs this year. I think that they will take a big step back. And all we wanted to do with this segment is just kind of preview, give you an idea what these blogs are going to be like, kind of quick hits about all 32 NFL teams. Each of, it, each of us are doing it slightly differently, but slightly the same. Right. So you can look for those blogs as part of the sportscasters previewing the NFL season on our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. We will be right back with Rob Domofsky from the Green Bay Post-Gazette. Our next guest is from Arlington Heights, Illinois. And is a graduate of Ohio University. In 1997, he started his work for the Green Bay Post-Gazette, where he has covered University of Wisconsin, Green Bay men's basketball, golf, and currently the defending Super Bowl champion Green Bay Packers. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the mega-talented Rob Domofsky. How are you doing today, Rob? Great, Steve. How are you? Doing very good. Excited to talk to you because it means one thing. It's back to football. Uh, we, t- we talked to you last time at the end of football, as we, you were kind enough to join us for our Super Bowl show. That was episode four. This is episode kind of number 40B. So wow. that kind of goes to show how long it's been since we've been able to kind of talk about real football games. Uh, we spent a lot of the summer, I guess, speculating about what could or what wouldn't happen to the league. Right. And then we spent this off-season kind of, I guess, kind of trying to catch up. And here we are two days away from the NFL kickoff. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you, 
this is the first time that Green Bay has hosted this Thursday night game. What what is the atmosphere around the city like, and what have you been able to notice at this point? Just two days before the game, have you noticed the NFL's presence? Oh yeah, I mean, you, for for one thing, the main street, well, one of the three streets that borders Lambeau Field is completely shut down. Oneida Street, um, which intersects with Lombardi Avenue, is is closed. There's a stage. Oh, it's the size of, you know, if, you, if you'd if you go to, like, Lollapalooza or, you know, Live Aid or, remember, or Farm Aid or any of those big outdoor music festivals, there's a, a stage that big at the end of the parking lot right along that street. And, um, you know, there's NFL signage, and, and the, the basketball arena where UW-Green Bay plays is right across the street from Lambeau Field. And they have draped that in, you know, giant arena-sized um, po- uh, pictures posters i mean i was gonna say life-size but they're like giant size of aaron Rodgers and drew Brees. and it was funny mike mccarthy the other day said uh that's right across from their practice field mike mccarthy packers coach the other day said that well, was kind of weird uh, at practice looking up and seeing you know drew Brees looking looking down <laughs> watching us so it was, it was kind of it, it, this reminds me of like a mini super bowl atmosphere i mean you know they they had the nfc championship game here in 2007 when they lost to the giants and there's more signage more nfl signage now you know, for, for this regular season game than there was for that game. This, this, they t- treat this almost like a Super Bowl, and it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I'll, I'll give you a, a taste of it here. Um, I've got kids that are in elementary school, and the Green Bay schools are letting the kids out on Thursday. I think it's 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, like two, uh, two hours early. Hmm. So the kids, uh, you know, I think it's more for busing routes and, right. you know, so, so traffic, you know, isn't it? But, I mean, these kids, you know, think they're getting out of school because the Packers are hosting a game. It's crazy. It's just uh it's it's like you know I've never seen I've done this for I think this is my 14th season I've never seen a regular season game like this. You know it's interesting too because the Saints have actually played in three of these. Yeah. Well, they will have played in three of these because they played when the Colts won their Super Bowl they played in Indianapolis. Then when the Saints won the Super Bowl, obviously they got to host Minnesota, and now the following season uh, they will get to play in Green Bay. Do you think that gives them any advantage or? Do you think you know, that maybe the experience last year, just being the defending champs? In fact, I wrote about that this week. Um, you know, the just how the Saints approached last season and why. You know, kind of what what they dealt with as as the defending champs. I think that'll help them. You know, in this game, the bottom line is um, it's a Week One football game. I mean, even though the NFL is dressing it up, you know, um, like crazy, it's, it's still the first game. I know everybody wants to get off to a good start, and both these teams have a history. Under their current coaches, starting pretty fast. I think um, between the two of uh, McCarthy and Peyton, they both came in the same year. Uh, I think they've lost one opener between the two of them combined. So um, these are two teams that like to start fast. But I don't know. I'm not sure that that you know any of that other stuff is going to decide the outcome. I think it's you know it's just going to be who plays better. You know, it's so interesting the paths of these two teams because. You know, Sean Payton, I think, really thought he had a chance at the Green Bay job. We all did. I thought he was the front runner for the job, you know, when right. he started. Right, and then they gave that job to McCarthy, and because of that, he ends up in New Orleans. Now, here they are a few years later, both with Super Bowls. You know, it's kind of an interesting path that they've both taken to the top of their professions. Do you sense any, like, kind of rivalry there or any kind of, like, you know, Peyton kind of looking back and seeing how McCarthy's doing and vice versa? Yeah, I think if you looked at that whole coaching class, um, there were, off the top of my head, there were seven or eight of those guys 
that got hired that year. These might be the only two that are still in their current jobs. Yeah, I think that's um, correct. I can't remember if Kubiak was the same year in, in Houston or not, but um, you know, I think almost all those guys, Dick Duran uh, was in that class. Um, there were a bunch of them. They've all been fired. So, um, and some teams, I think Oakland's been through two or three coaches since then. Right. So, it's um, there's a natural rival in, in that regard. Um, there's no question. And then just, I mean, these are two of the better teams in the NFC. I mean, I was just looking back. You know, they played. We kind of wrote and talked about a lot of this in 2008 when they played that regular season game. Uh, I think it was a primetime game down in the dome, and it was like 51. Yep. Monday night I mean, game. It was, it was a uh, it was a shootout in the first half. Um, and 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 you know the both teams kind of were keeping pace and um, you know it had in the second half New Orleans just totally blew the game open. Um, yeah, the score. I mean, at halftime it was twenty one twenty. It was twenty four twenty one New Orleans at halftime, and it ended up being fifty one twenty nine. And you know that game really more than anything helped put the Packers on the right path. Is going to sound strange, but that 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 forced McCarthy to change defensive coordinators. And hire Dom Capers, um, you know, in that off season, and then that that game really was kind of the the start of the downfall of the previous defensive staff. So, um, you know, there's there's definitely some some connections, even though these teams don't play each other. You know, they're not division teams or anything. They haven't played in the playoffs, and you know, in recent times, if if, if ever. Nope, ever. But I think um, I do think that you know when you talk about it, it reminds me a little bit of what the Packers and Cowboys were in the '90s when both teams were were really good and. You know, even though they weren't division rivals, they were they were rivals in the NFC. Let's just talk about the pack. Let's focus on the Packers for a few minutes because that's really why I have you. There's been a lot of talk about the Packers kind of just naturally getting better from last season to this season because of all the players mm-hmm. that they had a they had an IR last year getting healthy. Uh, what has how have the IR players from last year fit in? And who specifically makes the team better just by being healthy? Is it Jermichael Finley that really sticks out, or maybe someone else? It's you know Finley and Grant are the Ryan Grant are the two big offensive players. Obviously, they're coming off IR, but um, this is not a big running team. McCarthy has pretty much abandoned the idea that they're a they're a smash mouth team. They're a spread offense team. That's you know when they have all the weapons that they have. And having Finley in there is really the difference. Um, they they built their entire offense around him last year, and when he went down in week five at Washington, McCarthy had to scrap a bunch of his playbook, and and really then he rediscovered Jennings, Greg Jennings. So, um, you know, the question now is how do they integrate you know all these guys back into the offense? And plus, then they they drafted Randall Cobb, receiver out of Kentucky, who looks like he's a, a playmaker. Plus, the emergence of James Starks. Uh, running back who who basically you know came out in the playoffs and was their was their starting running back from the postseason. So they've got some questions, you know, at how they are able to integrate this. But Finley is the big difference maker. He's six five, uh, two hundred forty pounds, runs like a receiver, is physical, uh, you know, like a tight end linebacker type. I mean, how do you cover him? Do you, you you teams that try to cover him with a linebacker, no chance. Teams that try to cover him with a safety, and he's too physical. So uh, and then if, okay, if you are gonna Double team him, fine. Then let him stretch the defense, take the safety out of the play, and run your West Coast crossing routes and slants with with Jennings and Driver and Jordy Nelson and James Jones and Randall Cobb. Run those underneath. So um, I think that Finley is the biggest difference maker. Grant is is probably in his last year here. Um, he's in the final year of his contract. They're not going to give him another deal. Um, there, you know, he'll probably end up splitting time with James Starks, and I bet by the end of the season, Starks will end up being the the primary guy. 
so his return it's you know helps for depth but but in terms of major impact that's that's not the case you know it's interesting i'm just listening to you answer that question and i find another similarity between the saints and the packers do you think that these two teams might have the deepest wide receiver cores in the entire league yeah it sure looks that way i mean the saints are are loaded although i'm not sure how healthy they are i haven't um i thought i heard they might have some injury issues but it um there's no question that um that these teams i mean you 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 have two great quarterbacks you know arguably two of the top five or six in the league and, and it just so happens that these teams you know obviously were smart enough to surround these quarterbacks with um just an absolute ton of, of offensive talent um now with that comes some problems in that, you know, are you going to be able to have um, enough footballs to go around? Um, now, I know that, that the Saints do. Lance Moore is hurt. I don't know what his status is. Uh, he hasn't practiced all week, I think. They're being still, very coy about it. Yeah, yeah they've yeah. got enough weapons that, um, you know, it's. I think, you know, if, if you lose a guy for a week or two, it doesn't doesn't really hurt you because, you know, I think the biggest problem both these teams have is keeping keeping all their playmakers healthy. And I know that's the Packers, you know, I mean, they're not going to say it, but that's the concern with especially a guy like Finley who, if you've heard him talk, he's pretty pretty arrogant. He's pretty – he's got a big ego. Um, if he doesn't get the football, I think, you know, that could end up causing problems. You know, like the Packers are built around the tight end in a way in Finley, the Saints seem to be moving towards – building their offense a little bit around Jim Graham, who has turned out to be an absolute diamond in the rough stud. The Saints will have trouble covering Finley. How will the Packers approach covering Graham, and what? How will this the Packers defense try to attack the Saints offense? Yeah, that's I don't you know specific matchups. I, the season's come up on us so fast. I you know, and I haven't even seen the Saints play at all in the preseason. But I can tell you this that that. Dom Capers, if he feels like they can stop the run, which, you know, will be a challenge given Ingram and Sproles and you know, Thomas. they're still, yeah. still going to use Pierre Thomas. So, yeah. um, you know, if Capers feels like he can stop the run, then he'll blitz like crazy. Um, and if he, if he feels like he can't stop the run, then he's not going to blitz. So uh, you'll watch that early in the game. If, if, they're, if, if New Orleans is having success running the ball, you know, it hurts how much he can attack. So, because you don't want to be caught in a blitz and, and then, then run a draw, and then you're, you know, all of a sudden the guy runs 60 yards by you. So, um, I think that'll be, you know, that's that's his defensive philosophy no matter, you know, what team they're playing. Now, obviously, the Saints, when they spread it out, you know, they're going to, the Packers are going to have to go nickel and even some dime. And, and that's what the Steelers tried to do to them in the Super Bowl, and the, and the Packers handled it okay. So, um, you know, I think their their defensive game plan will be similar. Seems like last year Clay Matthews kind of emerged as a superstar in the league. How important is he to what the Packers try to do on defense? And is he kind of maybe even past uh, Woodson as being the maybe the most important player on that defense? Yeah, I'll put it to you this way: they lost games um, the first third of the season uh, against Washington and what was it Miami last year? Matthews basically didn't play in either of those games because of a hamstring injury, and they had zero pass rush. They lost both those games in overtime, and they were a different defense without him. Now, Raji, since then, has emerged um, as a real playmaker up front, and, and Woodson, you know, is always going to be the guy at the back end, but they've got to have Matthews. And, and, you know, they lose Colin Jenkins in free agency to Philadelphia, and he was their second-best pass rusher. So, that, you know, other than Matthews, they don't really have a proven pass rusher on that defense. What about it? Where is A.J. Hawk stand in his development? I think... 
I kind of thought that the team was maybe a little disappointed. He's still obviously a starting linebacker for the team. Yeah. Where does he stand? Well, they were they felt good enough about him to give him a you know a four year giving us four year contract extension that's going to pay him about ten million bucks this year. So um, they like him as a captain of their defense. He calls the the defense. He uh, since he's taken over that role for Barnett, there's been far fewer uh, miscommunications. Um, they feel like they. They're all on the same page, so they really like what he does as, as a kind of a quarterback on that defense. Now, is he the most athletic, nimble guy? No, but in the three-four, you know, your outside linebackers are more your athletic guys, and the inside guys, you know, really, uh, you know, aren't asked to do that as, as much. So I think from the, from that standpoint, you know, that's what they like about Hawk. Now they have Desmond Bishop also inside. He's really the more playmaking of the two inside guys, more so than Hawk is, but. They've signed both of those guys to contract extensions uh, since the end of the season uh, last year, and you know, they really feel good about those two inside guys. You mentioned Bardat being gone. He's actually with me here in Buffalo. What can Bills fans expect out of Nick Barnett? What kind of player well, is he? Nick will make a lot of plays, um, uh, but he's uh, sometimes is the kind of guy, not unlike, I don't know if you remember, you know, Darren Sharper who played for the Saints, yep. safety, different position, but, he, but Darren Sharper would take chances. He was a little bit more of a freelancer. Um, he'd come up with the big play, but he'd also, you know, you, the risk is that you might give up a play, and that's a, Barnett's a little bit like that from the linebacker position. Um, but the guy's a playmaker. There's no question he was a very good player here for, for a long time, seven, eight years. Um, the last couple years, two of the last three years, he ended up injured, and, and that's the, the, the biggest question with the guy. But he's uh, he is a energetic, uh, outgoing guy that, that if, you know, I think fans will like his personality. You mentioned Randall Cobb being a potential uh, rookie playmaker on the team. Is there any other players from the draft class or maybe free agents that they signed that stand to make a big impact on the team and uh, you know people that weren't there for the Super Bowl that are now? Yeah, one of the guys who I think has a chance to, to make an impact, although he's not going to play this week because he just hurt his back in practice, is a rookie undrafted free agent named Vic Soto. Played at BYU, he was a defensive end, and he's now an outside linebacker. And I don't know if you saw the Indianapolis game. I think it was a national TV, uh, not the Indianapolis game. Yeah, the Indy game was a preseason yep. uh, national TV game. He had a sack in that game against the Colts starters. Then the next week in their finale against Kansas City, again playing against the starters, he had one and a half sacks, uh, a stripped, a forced fumble, and an interception that he returned for a touchdown. And he's a little bit built like Matthews. He's a, a 6'3", 250-pound guy. Uh, really athletic, and he could be the pass rusher that they need opposite him. Um, so, uh, you know, he's just a total off-the-radar guy, but he's somebody to watch as the season goes on here. Do you believe in the whole concept of being the champions? You have an extra target on your back, and teams are going to give you their best. Do you think that that's something that is going to help the Packers mentally prepare for this season? Or do you think that that's something that's maybe built up in the media more and maybe yeah. it's one of those NFL cliches that doesn't mean much? Yeah, I don't think it, it, it factors in the NFL. When you only play 16 games, you, you come ready to play each and every week. Um, there, there's, I think it's totally different in uh, in the NFL than it is, you know, maybe other places where, I mean, I, you know, I remember covering, you know, you cover college basketball, for example, and, and you know, let's say you're um, – you know, let's say you're uh, Virginia Tech or or NC State or somebody in the in the ACC, and when Duke and North Carolina come to your place, so all the students come out, and you've got a sold out place. 
Well, Lambeau Field sold out every week, and the crowd's the same. And it's not like just because uh, you know one of the better teams are coming in that you know the crowds get amped up. And I think it's the same in most NFL cities. Um, you know, when the Packers go to Chicago and play the Bears, it's wild. You know, no matter if both teams are terrible or or if one of the two or both are very good. So I just just it's just I don't buy that in at this level of football. Let's talk about the NFC Central for a second. Do the it seems like maybe the Vikings who have been uh one of the better teams in the division the last few years maybe might be down, but it seems like maybe Detroit is up a little bit. Do you look at anyone challenging them for this division, or do you think that it's their division to lose? Well, I may be in the minority here because everybody seems to be in love with Detroit as maybe the up-and-comers, but I mean, right. until, until their quarterback stays healthy for a full season, then I'm not ready to put them in there. But I still think Chicago. I mean, don't forget, Chicago won this division last year. Yep. Um, they hosted the NFC Championship game. Um, they beat the Packers, you know, uh, once in the regular season. So... I mean, I know they're, you know, maybe they had a fluke year or whatever, but I still think that they're the biggest challenger to the Packers in this division. I I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Jay Cutler returns from, you know, the debacle that was the, the, the playoff thing. game. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, their defense, Briggs is making noise again, and Erlacher is a year older, so it'll be interesting to see how that all comes together. But I still think the Bears are... You know they've got the most continuity. Um, you know Minnesota, it's got they got massive changes in quarterback, personnel, coaching staff. Um, so you know I, I still think I look at Chicago as the as the most likely challenger to them in this division. The sportscasters are here with Rob Domofsky from the Green Bay Post Gazette. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Rob Domofsky, D E M O V S K Y. One more question for you before we let you go. Aaron Rodgers, you mentioned earlier, top six quarterback in the league. Is has he kind of with this Super Bowl win established himself now in Green Bay as uh, like does he have the same status that Favre did after his uh, Super Bowl? Is all that behind the franchise? Um, where does where does Rodgers' relationship with the fans stand? Yeah, you don't hear much uh, pining for the old, you know, for Favre anymore. That no. pretty much disappeared. Uh, even before that, even the year before at '09, when you know Rodgers had their really good performance in the playoff game at Arizona when they lost that 51-45 overtime game. Um, you know, pretty much, I think everybody at that point realized, hey, they've got this guy. You know, he's he's definitely special. And then, and especially the way it ended with Favre in Minnesota, I think that turned the tides back toward toward Rodgers. But I'll, I will tell you this. Rodgers is not like in terms of the public figure and the beloved, you know, personality. That's not him. He's, he's he lives his life differently. You know, Favre lived it in the spotlight. Um, Favre, when Favre was Rodgers' age, Favre was out on the town. Uh, him and you know, his buddy Mark Chamura were were they were seen in the uh, in the in the scene, so to speak. You never see Rodgers out. You don't know anything about his personal life, um, and I think that's by design. He wants to be different. You know, than than Favre was. He doesn't want to live his life that way. But uh, but in terms of football, yeah, this guy is uh, he's he's elite, and people up here are are grateful to have him. And if you think about it, I mean, how rare is it that you can go from one you know surefire Hall of Fame quarterback who's an MVP and won a Super Bowl to another one who looks like he's on that path and has already won a Super Bowl? That's pretty rare. I mean, Montana Rice maybe. I mean, Montana Young. Yeah, right. Excuse me. I had Jerry Rice on the mind. Montana Young. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that's, you know, those are just few and far between that you can go. I mean, some, the Bears have been searching for 
a franchise quarterback since Sid Luckman. Um, right. and, 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 you know, the, the lotto organizations don't have one. I mean, um, you look around the league and, and it's hot, you know, you just don't have guys like this. And to have two of them in a row, um, you know, will end up being your quarterback here for probably a combined 30 or 35 years is pretty unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, and I just, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking Kelly, Marino, yeah. and Elway, all Hall of Fame quarterbacks, all have not been replaced exactly, uh, sufficiently yeah. by their teams. Well, last thing, what, where do you predict the Packers finish this year? What, what do you think? Yeah, we did that. In fact, that we that ran in our paper special preview section today. I picked the Packers to go eleven and five, win the division, and I picked them to lose to, I believe, Atlanta in the divisional playoff game. I've got uh, I've got New Orleans and 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 Atlanta, two teams in the same division, playing for the NFC title. And I think, I mean, that doesn't mean I don't that the Packers can't get there, but I just I think it's it's a hard road, and I think that those. That Atlanta is really, really talented, and, and uh, I think they could end up uh, ending the Packers season. All right, Rob Domofsky, the Green Bay Post-Gazette. Again, you can find him on Twitter, at his name. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate the time. Let's do it again. All right, thanks, buddy. All right, we'll see you. All right, got to thank Rob Domofsky. Got to thank all our guests here on episode 40 of the Sportscasters, Richard Deitch, Jim Trotter. Also, I have to publicly apologize to Aaron Nagler from Cheesehead TV. I made a boo-boo, and I assumed that he lived in the central time zone, and we set up to talk at 5 o'clock. I thought he meant (laughs) central, and he kind of waited on me, and we didn't call him. So that was my bad, and uh, we're going to get – Aaron on the show again sometime. Give him a chance to tell us all about all the great things they do at Cheesehead TV. Uh, make sure you check out Cheesehead TV. It's cheeseheadtv.com. And again, I want to apologize to Aaron. Uh, I said I want to thank our guests. I did that. Got to remind everyone where you can find the Sportscasters. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, sports underscore casters. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog, which is very important this week, thesportscasters.blogspot.com, you can expect three things this week. One is you can expect Don's blog, 32 run-on sentences. You can expect my blog, 32 things. And you can expect Sunday from 1 to 4 that I will probably be doing a little bit of live blogging, I think. Uh, The Saints don't play. Um, I'm going to be watching... A lot of different games, and since it's the first week, and there's going to be a lot of different kind of opinions to be had, uh, I think that uh, the blog should be active on Sunday as well. And you can find all of that information on our website, which John and I really want to work on at some point when we get the chance, uh, sports-casters.com. And I also should mention you can find Don on Twitter at Sports. You can find me at Diversity23, although I usually do most of my tweeting at sports underscore casters. I've tweeted once from there. Yeah, you should tweet more <laughs> from there. I don't know why I don't. I, I don't tweet a lot in general, but I'll have to start. All right. The last piece of business today is pick four, which is going to have a real NFL feel to it. Before we get to today's picks, I should recap last week, which wasn't great, at least from my point of view. Uh, I did win Oklahoma uh, over Tulsa. I laid a boatload of points. Oklahoma still covered, winning 47-14. to I lost the game of the week. I, I thought Oregon would outscore LSU, 
and then there was a ton of points scored in the game, and it was the opposite. Right. LSU beat uh, Oregon 40-27, to and that actually tripped us both up. Apparently not distracted by uh, no. their suspensions. My bull pick prediction was Georgia to beat Boise State. I just kind of thought that the SEC power like Georgia would be able to take care of Boise State. Not the case. 30-21. to 21. And In a game, I don't mind losing, really. I picked TCU over Baylor. The game was fantastic. We played the clip yeah. off the top. Uh, Baylor won 50-48. to 48. Uh, So I can live with losing that one. That brings my record to 66-71. and 71. Don is 64-71 and 71 after a 2-2 two and two week. Uh, he was on the other side of that Boise State game, winning that 35-21. to 21. He also took Buffalo <laughs> plus 31 over Pitt. Buffalo covered. Buffalo was in that game for a long time. Gave Pitt all that they could handle. Ended up winning 35-16, to 16, but with Don's 31 points, he wins that one. I mentioned he lost the game of the week, and he also boldly predicted that only three starting quarterbacks would throw TD passes last week. Ended up being five. Sam Bradford, uh, Matt Rogers, or Aaron Rodgers. Cam Newton. Matt Castle, Cam Newton, and McCowan. Yeah, newly appointed star McCowan. All right, pick four today. Don, get us going. Game of the week this week is obviously Thursday opening football. Uh, the Saints in Green Bay. Green Bay is laying four points in that game. And I guess I'm just going with the until you beat the champ, or you got to beat the champs to knock them off. And I'll take Green Bay minus four. Listen, the home team has won this game every time that the NFL has played it. Hmm. Uh, New Orleans was a winner of this game last year. They beat the Vikings at home. They're also losing loser of this game uh, when they traveled to Indianapolis to play the Colts. I said off the top that there is nothing that I want more as a Saints fan than a return to the championship game. And I think the way to that is through the Packers. I'm getting four points. I don't know how many times this season I'm going to be able to pick the Saints and get getting points. points. Right. So I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to make the homer pick. I'm going to pick my team. I'm going to take the four points, and maybe we lose the game. But if we do, it's going to go down to the last minute, and the Packers are going to have to beat us by a field goal. My host choice this week, I'm going to take the Atlanta Falcons giving up three points at Chicago. I'm not a big believer in Chicago, and I might not be as high on Atlanta as some people are, but I'm much higher on them than I am down on Chicago. Well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I get what you mean. But, yeah, I, I am not a believer in Chicago at all, I, as I'll actually point out in my blog. But I will take Atlanta all day minus three points. All right, my host choice. I like the Steelers. I think the Ravens have added so many pieces that it's going to take them a couple weeks to really get it all together. I think this, the Ravens will challenge the Steelers in the long run. But I think the Steelers plus three against the Ravens Sunday, 1 o'clock on CBS. I'll take the Steelers in week one. I think that they're a team that's been together. And the Ravens got all these new kind of extra parts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and see on that. I'm going to take the Steelers. It's interesting. Three of our first four picks have been the away team. Uh, I'm going to continue that with my worldwide leader game, which is the Sunday night game on NBC at 8.20. Dallas at the Jets. Dallas is getting points here. I also am not a big fan of the Jets. Uh, a lot of talk, though. Lot, yeah, they love to talk. A lot of talk. I just think they've. I think they've taken a step back this year. And for a team that's been to the conference finals the last what three years now? Mm, two. 
two years. The third trip back is going to be tough. I think they're going to wear out. Like I said, I've, I think they've taken a step back just uh, personnel-wise. I'm going to take Dallas plus four, and I think they're actually going to win that game outright. All right, my worldwide leader pick. I'm going to take an underdog, a home team, or a favorite, a home team, the Patriots, minus seven over the Dolphins. It's the first of two Monday night doubleheaders on ESPN. It's at 7 o'clock. I love the Patriots in this game. I think they're ready to stop the Dolphins. I don't think the Dolphins are any good. I don't think seven points is enough. And I'm going to lay those points and expect to cover that easily. I love the Patriots in this game. (laughs) We're laying a lot of road points here today. Um, My bold prediction this week, it was hard to find a game. Uh, I I actually did hear Steve's bold prediction this week, which I kind of like. So to pick a different game, I'm going to take – the Bengals are at the Browns this week in Cleveland, and the Browns are giving up seven points. I am going to double that, and I will take the Browns minus 14 at the Bengals. I like that. I don't have a lot of faith in the Bengals at all this year. It's going to be a learning – Well, they made a great decision by just letting Carson Palmer just go home. Right. That was a great call for the team. <laughs> I, I don't think I love them with Carson Palmer, and I love them far, far less without him. I think they're, they've got to be the leader at the beginning of the season for the suck for luck. I think it would be hard to find a team much worse than that. So, And the Browns, I think, are on their way up. Their record might not reflect it this year because they're in that brutal division with Pittsburgh and uh, Baltimore, but I think the Browns are a team on their way up, and I think they just roll over the Bengals this week. Quick tweet from... SI underscore Peter King. Luke McCommon threw 15 preseason passes. Didn't play at all in the important third preseason game. Ladies and gentlemen, your starting quarterback for the Jags. Unbelievable. All right, my bold prediction. The Colts are nine-point underdogs against Texans this week. I'm going to say the Colts are going to win this game outright. Look it. They're a veteran team. They're without their stud. I think they're going to rally around that. The Texans are erratic. The Colts, I don't know. I just got a feeling that they're going to rally around Peyton. Peyton's won them so many games that maybe it's time to win one for Peyton. I think Kerry Collins is smart enough that he's going to know enough of the offense to get by with Reggie Wayne and Pierre Garçon and Austin Collie and, and Dallas Clark and Joseph Adai, all those guys are healthy right now at the start of the season. And those are all the weapons that the Colts surround Peyton Manning with. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust Kerry Collins with all those toys and all those weapons to do enough to pull the upset. I'm, I'm going to wave the points and just say that the Colts are going to beat the Texans outright Sunday at 1 o'clock on CBS. I like it. All right, that's going to do it for the Sportscasters NFL Football Spectacular. Don't forget to check out our blogs sportscasters.blogspot.com. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, I want to thank Richard Deitch. I got to thank Jim Trotter. And I got to thank Rob Domofsky. We are going to be back next week, Tuesday. It's amazing we've done 40 shows. 40 in the books. Still not one football game played. That's right. That's incredible. Well, some playoff games. Not one regular season game played. So the fun starts now. now. We'll be back (laughs) next week. Hopefully Craig... Kustens from SportingNews.com, who couldn't make it this week, will be able to make it next week. May have some other stuff we're working on. We always deliver with our guests. I don't think it'll be ever any different now that the football season is in swing. So thanks for listening. Don's going to cue the hip.
We'll see you next week. All right.